This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to episode 157 of Love That Album, proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Morris Bishtinsky. Thank you so much for downloading the show. Aside from this, I think the most iconic drum pattern for a pop song has to be this. Please don't write to contradict me. My Sharona by the Knack was ubiquitous on the airwaves back in 1979. It proved to be a blessing and a curse for the band from Los Angeles. I'm not going to go into the history here. If you've lived through it, you know that the media and some fans turned fickle for a whole bunch of reasons. I was always left asking why. Over their lifetime, the band produced six studio albums. There were breakups and multiple drummers, none of which I'm pleased to say spontaneously combusted on stage. Although the classic lineup of the first three albums recorded for Capitol Records featured the powerhouse that was Bruce Gary behind the drum kit. The band finally called it a day after the death of lead singer, rhythm guitarist and songwriter Doug Figer in 2010. Off and on, the band were around for about 40 years. Not bad for a band that the lazy people say were just a one-hit wonder. I call bullshit. They kept working. All their studio albums have terrific songs that deserve your attention, certainly from the people who only went as far as their brilliant debut get the knack, but even from anyone who has a great love of pop music. I got that debut album back in 1979 and it's never been far from my turntable. Neither has But The Little Girls Understand or Round Trip. The three remaining albums are also very good. Zoom would be my favourite out of those three and I'd recommend that if you can track it down. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show the bassist for the knack, Prescott Niles. 15 year old me would never have believed I'd be speaking to a musician from a band I played obsessively. 
obsessively. And yes, I played that Sharona drum pattern all the time behind the kit growing up. As you'll hear in this conversation, Prescott's history and the Knack's history is about a lot more than the one song that most people know them for. We'll be speaking about what he did pre-Knack as well as his time in the band. He had first-hand stories about Woodstock, Jimi Hendrix, George Harrison, Fillmore East and a ton more. The thing that comes across the most, though, is his pride in what they achieved. He loved his fellow bandmates and, as you'll hear, champions their musicianship and their friendship. This discussion, i got to say, was an absolute hoot and was recorded over two sessions when we ran out of time at the first. We spoke for a lot more than what was recorded. I'm wrapped that doing this show has given me that opportunity. I want to send special thanks out to Randy Haker, who made the arrangements for this interview for me. I had to change dates around a couple of times, so I'm so grateful that he worked around me for that. So, as usual, Joanne will now give you the contact details and then I'll be back with my discussion with Prescott Niles of The Knack. Stick around at the end of the show for details of next month's program you're listening to love that album episode 157 i got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor we hope you're enjoying the show you can find previous episodes at love that album podcast.blogspot.com you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com all part of the pantheon podcast network To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 157 of Love That Album Podcast. And look, I frequently go and say that I'm excited about having some of the special guests that I have on the show, but I really, really am doubly excited because I have a member of a band that meant so much to me when I was a teenager. The album that I cherished and treasured and still do to this day was Get The Knack. But a lot of people only sort of think of The Knack as the one album wonder bullshit. They put out six albums and we're going to be covering stuff about all of those albums. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's where we're going to go. Uh, my guest is bass player for The Knack, Prescott Niles. Welcome to Love That Album, Prescott. It's a pleasure. And I, I am very happy to be here with you. And again, Australia was a great beginning for us when we were touring before the album came out. And and we had wonderful experiences there too. And we had a great Aussie producer. Mike Chapman, that's right. Yeah, Mike, Mike was wonderful. Well, so the first thing I actually wanted to ask you, and this may be an unusual place to go, but you've already sort of brought up the Australian connection, was I remember listening here in Melbourne to radio station 3XY. Oh, 
On here, 3XY, 23 to 2. And I think that your simulcast with the gig that you did here in Melbourne at Bombay Rock, I recorded it off the radio and played that tape to death. And it was also, besides the gig, there was also some stir because at one point, Doug Wetton said to the audience, you're having a great time. We're having a great time too. We're having a fucking gas. And I don't think, I mean, nowadays you can say anything you want on the radio, but at that time it was a big deal. Apparently you could say at the uh, Oscars, yeah, you can do anything these days. That, I didn't even remember that, but it's quite a night. And we were the first, and I'm reminded other people from your country in interviews that they didn't know that. That was the first simulcast to Ze- New Zealand, if I remember correctly. I still have the poster, by the way, in storage. It's a big poster. I'll, I'll find it and I'll find the picture, okay? Oh, please. I'd love to see that. Actually, that'd be cool for me to advertise this episode of the podcast. By the way, that club, it was rocking, man. And it was wonderful to play there that night. I'm glad it, it became a, a memory of yours. That's fantastic. What else do you remember of the night? I mean, because I know that you, at the time it was a big whirlwind and you were doing gigs all over the world and there was a whole lot of excitement and all that. But I guess from my hometown, I got to know, was there anything that you remember specifically about that show? Well, Australia was unique. I believe we first went to New Zealand, which was maybe a good way to appreciate Australia better. When we got there, it was funny because they had a, they were passing out this flyer about the knack, the knack at, at their peak, the biggest band in the world at their peak. We just started. How can we be at our peak? <laughs> But it was a weird thing. But um, New Zealand was fun. I think we played in Auckland first, by the way. And then we went to Australia. I believe we were number one somewhere. Uh, I believe, yeah, obviously the album was out. But we were number one, which added to the excitement. We weren't the Beatles. It wasn't like they closed the streets or, you know, we just, I mean, we were new, really. And I just remember it was exciting because, I mean, I had never been to Australia. No dream that would be. New Zealand as well, but in a different way, of course. Because that was like like the end of whatever you go into after that but uh, I enjoyed the people but getting to Australia was really like getting to the big city it's like going from Detroit to, to New York it's, a, it's like a mega uh, you know uh, Melbourne of course and it was a wonderful show I do remember that I don't remember the after of it but I know it was exciting and of course doing Countdown <laughs> Uh, was fantastic. That interview with Molly Meldrum and yourselves is still up on YouTube. I saw it recently. I forgot all about it. It was wonderful. The audience was wonderful. We did a song I never knew we did before, uh, Lucinda. Did you perform that on Countdown? I think we did. I think we did more than one song. fascinating because Lucinda was possibly going to be a single not really but it appeared somewhere but that was exciting that night it was fantastic and uh, I, I believe we did that show now when we did that show little did I know you know Sally Boyden right yeah 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 of course yeah young talent now, Sally time. was on that show as the 14 15 year old like singer right and, and became an actress who would know years later I became one of her dear friends and wrote songs with her you, you know? wrote some songs with her I, I wrote some songs with her she's an excellent songwriter she has a 
book coming out as well. I forget the name of it. Punctuation, I believe, is the name of it. It's fascinating. She's very literate. And we became friends. And I, who knew? When she told me she was on the show with us, I couldn't believe it. It's one of those moments where she's like 16. I was only 10 years old, but it was fascinating. It was a wonderful show, but yeah, so I met her, of course. And I had no idea she had quite the, le- she had quite the legacy as an actress. She never talks about it, but she became a good friend. So that's one of the real gems I got from Australia, by the way, meeting her. So I had a great time in Australia. Fantastic. Uh, the people, and I stayed at the Steeples uh, townhouse, I believe. I remember certain rem- memories, but I remember it was very cool being there. And I, I enjoyed it very much before we went to Japan. Mm. So that was really, really a, a great memory. But I'm glad you remember it. first album was what it was the big big thing it became we should have had more singles which I'll get into so what was it like for the second album it's like I'm interviewing you now (laughs) (laughs) the second album I remember chart wise didn't do like the same sort of business as the first one but I ran out and grabbed it the first available opportunity that I could okay so this comes to a question I was going to ask you later but I might as well ask you now I heard rumors at the time that the band were wanting to record their first album as a double so what effectively would have been Get the Knack and But the Little Girls Understand as a double but Capital put the kibosh on that is that true or is that bullshit no it was a fable that Doug created we were doing an interview a few years later and I was with Burton I don't know how many years later it was and Doug was going well the second album is really supposed to be a double album uh, we decided it's better to do one I, I kicked Burton under the table I'm going where was I <laughs> and Burton goes I was there I don't know either what are you talking about I don't know why that was fun. Let me go back a minute. And also, the first album was perfect. Mike Chapman being Mike Chapman, who I will extol in a moment, talk about his genius, what he did and what he didn't do, which was a true producer. We also did a song by Bruce Springsteen that Bruce gave to us because uh, Bruce Gary, I guess, had met him. It was called Don't Look Back. I don't know if you've heard that song. I can't recall it, no. one of the Rhinos like retrospective albums I believe and it's a great great song it also came out on a reissue of a Capitol album uh, years later so we did that song now it should have been on the album Mike didn't feel it, it fit because the writing style was different but, you know all of the songs we recorded was the best songs we did there was no question about adding or that was the only song we decided to add possibly because it was a great song but it didn't fit we had met Mike um, I didn't realize who he was actually I lived in England from 73 to 75 not realizing almost every hit on on, on the Top of the Pops show was written by Mike Chapman and Nicky Chen well it cooked for the Rack label wasn't it? 
Yeah, Rack Label and Susie Quattro, Sweet, Slade. I mean, there's all these pop things that Mike had written with Nikki. So I had no idea who he was. When we started working with him, I, well, when we were looking for producers, I guess his name came up and Mike really had wanted to check us out because we're kind of a pop rock band. And he had he had been working with Blondie Cryer. So that was a big, yeah, that sounds cool. And he came to see us and he thought we were one of the best live bands he's seen. And as a result, he said, look, guys, just get in the studio. We'll, I want to capture what you do live. There's a lot of bands, you know, when you go in the studio, it's about perfection. It's about nailing the particular track the correct way. Mike was a believer in like, you, I want to capture what you do live. And, you know, even complimenting our, our musicianship as a result. So that was the whole idea of going in. And when people call us one hit wonders, I always interrupt and know we're one take wonders. Now, as musicians, I'm very proud of that because we go in and we just start cutting and we got, we did the whole recording of the album in three days, literally. Mm. And then the mix was a few more days and then mastering, you know, we had the album done in two weeks. And I'm proud of Mike because as a producer, you know, Mike could have said, I've got a sound that I always use. I've been with producers like that. You know, they go, I've got my sound. I've got my ideas for production. We're going to go that way. And Mike basically had cashier to do that. But his approach was, no, you do you. And if there's anything we need, I'll mention it. So on maybe tonight, that ballad... The only thing that was Beatlesque in our career was that song, the Mellotron. But that was it. And I'll get into the Beatle comparison later. But that's pretty much it. That was a live song we did too. But that needed a little production, I think, to make it more interesting, you know? So Mike's approach was I don't need to produce, produce. I don't have to be Mike Chapman. I can make this album as good as it's going to be by letting you guys be as good as you are. And I give him, that's in the first outburst. And I give him credit. We basically cut Sharona on a, thinking it was a run through because we go in like the second day and Mike would go, okay, let's, let's run it down. Right. So we did Sharona and Mike goes, I got it. And we go, what do you mean? Can we hear it? He goes, no, let's, I got it. And we go, what do you mean you got it? We were just jerking around. I go, come in and hear it. You know, sometimes the first take is magic. And if you, if you have to overdub, you overdub. There was minor overdubs, like Burton overdubbed a couple of minor things, Doug fixed a couple of notes, you know? But Mike said to get a song like that from beginning to end without editing or punching in like sections is remarkable. And that song, I think the energy, and besides it being a great song with a great hook, I think the energy was captured. It sounded live and we did it live. So I'm very proud of that. And I think that added to the uh, un underproduced compared to a lot of groups that were doing a lot of heavy production. So make sense yeah completely look the thing that really excited me about that album at the time and still excites me is the production is the live sound because there's so many albums that came from the 70s that sounded like they were recorded in yeah. the next room it sounds like there's 5,000 mattresses between the band and the yeah. microphones and this sounds absolutely fresh it sounds like a 60s album not just because of the music but because it sounds fresh and vibrant and you put that album on and it still does sound fresh and vibrant and that's to Mike Chapman's credit. Yeah, it doesn't sound dated is what we're saying. And I'm so grateful it didn't have those certain like, you know, whatever they were using at the time. It sounds like we sound live pretty much. Mm. It maybe a little cleaner only because, you know, Mike got a great vocal sound as well. You know, he was the only one to tell you the story, but he was the only one who said Sharona was the number one. You know, prior to the album being released, I wrote in my journal and I said, okay, Mike, I'm going to hold you to it, right? <laughs> so Capital, when they got involved with us and, you know, I'll 
I'll go back in a moment and tell you about the uh, alleged Beatles prefabrication, which is a joke for a lot of reasons. Instead of capital, instead of putting out a single first, a lot of record companies will basically put out a single to get people interested. Then they'll follow with the hit. And then the album will pick up steam. It's a lot. It's a formula. Mm-hmm. With us, uh, the album was given to radio. Sharona was not a single at first. The Capital did not designate that as the hit. They just gave it to radio, which is backwards, but it worked to our favor, believe it or not. And it became the most requested album, but Sharona became the most requested song in America. So radio actually made Sharona the single, and it, it, or the people that called in. So Capital Rush, you know, Rush released a single. So the album became number one first, and then. Then Sharona became number one. But I'm grateful because people heard the album. And I'm glad that people heard the whole album and not just Sharona. And of course, they released the Sharona 45 with most of Burton's guitar solo. They okay. the solo. I was furious. I can tell you from my memory, though, that at least Melbourne Top 40 Radio played the album version far more than they played the single version. I'm pretty sure I heard that full guitar solo more on the radio. FM radio until they started changing pro whatever. They always played the full version. We didn't actually have commercial FM radio when you guys had gone and released Get the Knack. That was not for another year or so. So, But it was AM radio that was for once doing the writing. Yeah, it's very odd. A lot of people knew that there was a full solo if they had the album. And unfortunately, on radio these days, you know, I drive and listen to you know, radio a lot, FM, whatever, and they do play the edited version, which I don't like very much. And even the TV shows we did back then, I believe we did the uh, 45 version, mm. did the time slot. I'm a big champion of Burton Nevere. He's one of the greatest pop guitar players ever. He could play anything. And that solo, and you know, when people go, oh, Sharona, you know, my Sharona's a pop song. I defy anybody to have a solo like that on a pop song. leads were very, very good. But when you have a, a four and a half minute song and you've got a minute and a half solo, that it better be damn good. And that peaked. And then you have a drummer like Bruce Garrett, who you've mentioned you're a big fan of. Mm. I had a lot of situations where I missed playing with Bruce. I played with him. Then he went to England to play with Jack Bruce for a short time. Then he came back to LA. Then I ended up going to England with another group. Then he was supposed to come play with my group, but then he ended up playing with Jack Bruce again. So it was a lot of hit and miss with Bruce, you know, and he had called me and uh, was working with Doug and Burton. And they said they needed a bass player. Doug was going to go to rhythm and they wanted me to kind of look like McCartney and play like Ann Whistle. And I raised my hand. That's me. Meaning it could be John Anthony was one of my heroes. And the Who was one of the favorite bands I've ever, you know, favorite of favorite favorites, you know. And I had the great pleasure of seeing them a number of times in New York. But man, you know, there's nobody that even goes there in terms of the power and the songwriting and everything. Where Bruce Bruce could be that. But anyway, he said, yeah, Prescott, this is the opportunity to play with Bruce. I would have joined any band at that time period. But we started playing live. The first gig we did was June 1st of 78. And after we did that show, we shook hands and go, okay, we're going to do this thing. We all felt that same, something we never have in any other band or combination of music. You know, Doug and Burton had been writing songs as a songwriting team and they had made demo tapes and actually Capital turned them down two years earlier. And Good Girls Don't was one of the songs in the demo tape. So you fantasize away while you're squeezing her. You thought you heard her say, Good Girls Don't. 
Now, for some reason, I had it in my head, and I know I'm wrong, but for the longest time I had it in my head that Good Girls Don't was a song that Doug had originally written in some form for his previous band, Sky. But I must be wrong about that. But I know that there was some Sky song I thought that The Knack ended up doing. Am I wrong on that? Or? Yeah, I mean, wrong, but not wrong. We did rehearse other songs as we were like honing our stuff. A lot of the songs in Get The Knack were written as a band. Uh, that's what The Little Girls Do was a song he had written with Burton Pryor. Good Girls Don't. Doug got the, the credit for writing the song himself. Burden did help out at some. The guitar part is brilliant in the verses, by the way, the little hook line. Uh, and that was passed on by Capital. Most of the art, art war, I don't know if you've heard that song. That yeah, yeah, on, yeah, from uh, Round Trip. That's like a punk song. If you really listen, it played with fucking brilliance, but, you know, Doug was doing a Johnny Rot. Literally, there's a video of us from the Whiskey Black and White. He's doing Johnny Rot. Mm-hmm. You know, Doug liked punk music. That was a great punk song, but that song wasn't on the album. And, and as the group, you know, matured, a lot of the songs were written based on the, the group sound like frustrated selfish especially i mean i played selfish with other drummers nobody had the bruce feel bruce had you know just the way he did the tom patterns the way he hit them and the dynamics of the band you know we could be in two bars we can go from piano you know be soft to medium soft back to soft to almost loud and then killer on the chorus so there's a lot of dynamics in the band i believe and bruce was extraordinary and, the, and Sharona wouldn't have been Sharona. If the, you know, I have an early tape of us playing at the Starwood in LA, and Bruce was playing more of a hi hat down there, you know, accenting. Mm-hmm. As we played it more, he came up with the flam idea. Burton had mentioned it because, I guess, going to a go go by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, it was a little bit of a similar. But the whole thing of that song, in some drummers, even, I swear, I played with somebody recently who did Sharona. I'm going, we aren't, why aren't you doing flams? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, <laughs> you learn the song and you don't know the whole thing's flam <laughs> and so when you really let that it, it, I mean yeah the bass line's what it is but that drum thing is signature and I don't know any song that started off like that by the way Normally, we're used to sort of hearing guitar riffs, but effectively, you and Bruce went and wrote your own riff, your, your, the rhythm section riff before Doug and Burton come in. Yeah, but it starts with the drums. It starts with the drums, and then you I sort of in, mir- yeah. mirroring what, what Bruce does. I just did a typical thing. I, I'm not de- demeaning myself, but however, I mean, I played some great lines. That was pretty damn simple, but it, the, the drums really set it up. That's another thing, just sort of thinking about that album, that first album. And I know we're going to come to some stuff from the other ones as well because I love those other albums. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But the thing that really hits me like the, from the first time I listened to it is that Bruce loves using his toms for setting up the pattern of the song. I mean, it's not like sometimes, you know, toms are used as color. Uh, they're used right. as fills. But like on My Sharona, selfish, frustrated, the toms are a major part of, um, of the song's to, color. What, what about Heartbeat? Heartbeat, yeah, of course. Although, mind you, Buddy Holly. You know, yeah, it, but rolling but he's doing Keith Moon as Buddy Hot, you know what I mean? That's true. And Bruce yeah. a lot from Keith Moon. And- Why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Let 
me out, by the way. A lot of people I've jammed with think they can play it. Also, number your name. I'm sorry to be such a fan. I can't help it. But number your name, the drum fills. The t- it's all it's all low tom, right? Mm, that's true. Yep, yep, yep. That's how the verse, verse starts. Bruce would do that a lot. Then go to high and you always went to the ride cymbal, usually on choruses for lift or in a bridge. He liked playing the bell of the ride cymbal. Yeah, but it worked because it changed the color of it. And, you know, again, that album, you know, Good Girls Don't is not an easy song to play on drums either. It's a teenage sadness. Da, 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 I'm sorry, I'm such a Bruce Gary fan, but. I'm in awe because you got to work with the great man and as I've said before we started recording this I'd be playing along with that album you know terribly but at least yeah, it was yeah. something it was something to aspire to and the weirdest song on the album by the way is Siamese Twins in terms of the lyric yes but he's playing a very interesting cowbell part if you notice and how he changes each of the sections Christopher Walken would have approved he would have loved it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotta have more cowbell and by the way even in the middle of Selfish on the bridge we're doing a fun part you he's doing this off thing high ass I'm only mentioning all all this to if anybody cares about the drum parts you know they should it's very brilliant how we how we played it doug's vocals were, were wonderful so anyway that album's a really reflection of the group playing together in la for a year and we made a hundred a night a lot of people ask well what about the thing about capital and the beatles or they start off with we had the fastest selling single since the beatles right i want to hold your hand mm-hmm. yeah i get that yeah but what does that mean we were the beatles the, no the only people that made us the beatles was the press because again i say the simple i would say the simple question well how many singers do we have one how many did the beatles have three uh well don't you think that alone is a disqualifier although and this especially comes out i think on albums like zoom and normal is the next guy yeah yeah there's a lot more emphasis on harmony singing especially on the more lighter poppy type of songs there's some gorgeous harmony sort of stuff absolutely and burden i give a lot of credit burden did a lot of vocal arrangements mm. especially on mr magazine since you know that album we'll get to that mm-hmm. But their vocal arrangement is fantastic. And Doug and Burton both love the Beach Boys, as well as other, where you got these very interesting harmony parts going on. So anyway, I'm very happy. So Capital uh, was didn't even advertise. They were one of the many record companies that wanted to, to, to sign us. You know, playing in LA, we had the good fortune of having people like Eddie Money, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen. By the way, I posted something recently. It's a live recording of us doing Mona and Not Fade Away with Bruce Springsteen, who joined us on stage. And uh, Ray Manzarek, we did a few door songs and Steve Stills jam with us as well. So I think we were the only band in LA where musicians thought it was cool to jam with us. I don't know of any pop band that had people of that caliber jam with them, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, no, I, I remember at the time, those were the stories that we were hearing, like, you know, yeah, that but we went along with the band. Them. The record companies, we were not signed. Nobody had any favors. Bruce knew Manzarek, but as, as the troubadour, as it started to spread of this new thing, people want, maybe we mentioned it and people wanted to jam with us because we're great musicians. We hear a lot about the LA punk scene of the time, yeah. you know, it's 79, 80, and, you know, bands like X and The Blast were playing a lot together and I mean I know you've sort of gone and told about these bigger rock artists who came on stage to jam with you but who were your fellow travellers who did you do gigs with or who did you share bills with were you playing with X no no we didn't we were we had strange combinations I remember whenever we went to San Francisco we played with different people I'm trying to remember the guy's name he was very popular but after we opened for people they didn't want us to open for me (laughs) I'm just saying I'll remember his name in a moment but 
Uh, he was a good guy. We went up to Frisco. We played. We opened for the police before our album came out. Wow. Okay. In San Francisco. And, you know, I, I of course, thought they were incredible. Now, he's, Sue Copeland's a great drummer. Yeah, another hero of mine. But they played differently. But I think as time went on, I think Bruce resented his success. And Stuart's great. Different style, different approach. But I think they both respected each other very much. We played in Paris and we, our album wasn't out. We, we played, uh, Ian Drury opened. Oh, wow. Hit, hit me with your, you know, rhythm stick. Yeah. And we played and then God, we're knocked off a, a straight. Dire straight. straight. Yeah. So we, we did kind of a slotted with different bands at the time. I'm, I'm jumping around, but you'll like this. Now, Sammy Hager was very big in San Bernardino. So we had gotten a call prior to the week and Sammy Hager was doing this big show. So one of the groups that was supposed to open canceled. So we were slotted to open. Now, nobody knew us yet. And this was not maybe the thing for a pop band play. If you, you know, compared to Sammy Hager. Now, the audience wasn't told that they had a different band opening. I forget who it was supposed to be, but they were a hometown thing. So it was, as we're getting on stage, my, I'll never forget this memory. Everybody has their lighter. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, so as soon as we go get on stage and they put the lights on us, you see all the things being blown out. All the, all the eulogies are gone. Said, oh, <laughs> so we start playing and because we're, we look, you know, white shirts, black ties. We're not cool rock guys. You know, we're pop rock, right? So people start started booing and throwing shit at us by the third song. So we looked at each other like, okay, we're going to get them. As we're playing, by the time we got to the end of the set, we not only managed, but we got them a standing applause by after Sharona. So things like that built our character. It, it wasn't like everybody we played for loved us. It wasn't that script wasn't written for us. Uh, until we had the album out, we were just another band that played really well. And maybe if Sharona wasn't Sharona, it would have taken two albums to be successful. I don't know. And, you know, I look back and I'm grateful that things happened the way they did. So, and again, to be respected as musicians was maybe record companies like that idea. So we had a number of record companies bidding for us. I mean, an interview the other day said Capital offered the most money to than any other arts. Well, that's BS. Polygram offered us a million to sign, right? And even by, back then, we knew if you borrow a million, you're going to owe a million and a half. And Capital only offered us 100 grand, which is nothing. I get a record deal in 72 with Velvet Turner, who I'll get into later. With I want to ask you about him, yeah. We got a $100,000 deal to come to LA. So we took a, a lower deal because we Capital was, all the people that had worked for their company saw us play live. So we felt like they were extended family. They weren't looking for the Beatles, but we knew everybody. Body, from the secretaries to the middle people to the A&R guys, you know, and, and Zimmerman, the head of Capital, really thought we were terrific. So that's why we signed with Capital, by the way. So you've, you've gone and mentioned Velvet Turner. I'd like to ask a few questions about you, about your pre-NAC life. I only found out, like, in terms of prep for this discussion about Velvet Turner, and I had to listen to that album, which you're playing bass on, and absolutely blew my mind. Now, I believe that, so Velvet was, like, friend of Jimi Hendrix, and Jimi really, really liked him and taught him some stuff, and post-Hendrix's death, Velvet went and put out this album called The Velvet Turner Group. Tell me a little bit about him and 
how you came to work with him and was he collaborative just anything you got this but this album is terrific well thank you and, and by the way there's two versions of it because what people did over the years is they, they found it and they started putting it out in England and in Germany and other countries now they one they called one thing the soul I got a double there was something that made in England to get the record you know what no I'll show it to you but anyway I have it with me I carry it mm. did you ever see the album cover you've seen it right I've okay. seen the album cover uh, yes yes okay so this one company put out a double CD they called one the soul mix and one the rock mix okay the soul mix is not a soul mix it had more bottom end and we were when we first did the album there was a couple of songs we re-recorded because we felt we had a better version of it, okay mm-hmm. four songs one of the songs I wrote too strangely new by the way and that bass line is pretty cool I was trying to be John Ron Wood and John Anwistle by the way <laughs> Ronnie Wood was with Jeff Beck group and I love Jeff Beck group mm-hmm. I saw him twice and Ronnie Wood was a great bass player a lot of people have no idea what I'm talking about so we recorded those songs now we were signed to okay interesting I was at Woodstock the year in, in Wood, 69 right mm-hmm. and I, I have a long story about that some other time uh, so here I am in the audience and Michael Lang put Woodstock together I had met Velvet in 68 he auditioned for a group I was playing in Brooklyn that's where I'm from by the way so he was auditioning as a lead singer for a blues grant and I had kept looking at him he was like a tall gym he was 6'3 but he hunched out I kept looking at him and I said where'd you get those clothes from man? what the hell you look like Jimmy he goes no man let's like you know Jimmy lent you the clothes what are you talking about now Velvet's 6'3 Jimmy's 5'10 and the shirt coming up there is fucking naval right so, and I'm from Brooklyn. I go, what are you talking about? He said, you know Jimi Hendrix? He goes, yeah, I do. And I'm thinking, no fucking way. So we started, he said, you play guitar? He goes, yeah. So I said, play some. So he actually played Foxy Lady. Now, nobody I knew in Brooklyn knew the chords to Foxy Lady. I'm going, okay, you can play it. What's up? So we, we became friends. We started talking on the phone. So in 68, Jimmy played Philharmonic Call on Thanksgiving in 68. And Velvet said, hey, I got tickets. You want to come down? We'll do the show and then there's a party gonna be for Jimmy's 25th birthday and I go yeah sure because I'm taking the train ride I'm going this guy's full of crap right <laughs> you know I mean come on right Jimmy Hendrix who's a god now I saw Jimmy before I met Velvet Fillmore so I was still in awe of Jimmy Hendrix seeing him on stage I can't explain what he what it was because it was you never knew but whatever he did nobody else could do like he did it you know mm-hmm. let alone his songwriting so I went to see Jimmy play Philharmonic Hall, which is brilliant. It was a classical music hall. So the sound was excellent. And then we went uptown to the, I think it was uh, 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 the Cheetah Club, perhaps. One of those clubs. And literally, I'm there standing 15 feet from Jimmy at his birthday party. Of course, I was petrified. Didn't say a word. I felt like a girl wanted to meet an actor. You know what I mean? I'm a movie star, right? I just said, hey, so after that, Velvet had a credibility. So we started playing together. I did meet Jimmy twice with Velvet, but just like being with Velvet, you know, hey, what's up? You know, I mean, that was the extent of it. I think I might have jammed with him. Now, I know you, you go, why would I? Because it was a place called Langano's up in uh, up midtown Manhattan. And people would jam there at 2, 3 in the morning, like they did it to Steve Paul scene. So I would get, I had the, the, the nerve to go up there and sometimes do a blues song with somebody. It's dark, so I'm playing and Velvet 
told me later that Jimmy played something. I was petrified to begin with. I mean, I'm 18 and I'm up there thinking I'm great. I was playing bass for two months, but I was a fast learner. And so whatever that was, I probably was frozen anyway. So, but I did jam with people. So anyway, meeting Jimmy a couple of times was extraordinary because he was bigger than life. And after seeing him at Woodstock, becoming this icon to the world was pretty amazing. You know, Mm -hmm. I went to California that summer and uh, that's when Jimmy died. And both of us couldn't believe it because Jimmy seemed immortal. And you can well imagine because nobody was dying back then at that age. There was a trend that started, but still it was like, how can somebody die at 20, 27, 25, 20, you know, nobody was doing that. Heroin addicts, the beat poets in Manhattan might have been doing, but not pop stars. It was too new. Brian Jones, but everybody knew he was kind of had problems. You know, I mean, it was nuts, but that maybe wasn't even an overdose. So Velvet and I had played together before. So when Velvet, when we found out Jimmy died, I flew back to New York. And uh, we were in, we got a lot of interest to cut a demo. So we went in and we cut a demo of the song. Then Michael Lang, who was a million miles away from me, wanted to sign us to his label. Think how weird that is to be some kid a year before. And now we're going to Woodstock to sign a record deal. Now, this is because Jimmy had passed away, but, you know, because now Velvet was, you know, possibly had something to do with Jimmy. We did a demo. We got a hundred thousand dollar record deal. Tom Wilson was going to produce us. Wow. I didn't realize who Tom Wilson was. Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan. Well, Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did jazz, but I knew he was special, but I had no idea. So we started recording. I'm just giving you a quick rundown. We started recording and Velvet was good and the songs were good, but he wasn't Jimmy. And people kind of lost interest, right? Tom Wilson was going, yeah, well, he, he disappeared more in the sauna with some of his hookups, so to speak. Were you happy with the album? Were you happy with how it sounded in the end? After we initially had the album done, Michael Lang sold something. The record company wasn't doing well. So Family Productions, which uh, somebody named Artie Rip was president, he also was working with Billy Jolly. So he took over the contract. We re-recorded four songs that came out on his label. Now, I thought it was good, but it didn't get any promotion. And, and you know what happens. I mean, it was an album. I'm glad we did it. The group kind of broke up. That's when I started traveling. I went to Boston. I went to England. So that was the end of Velvet for the time. Now, I still was friends with Velvet. And he was one of my, my best friends. And you get a lot of great stories about that. Without Velvet, I wouldn't have gone backstage to all the clubs that nobody would have ever let me in. Because I met Velvet and he knew Jimmy. I get into places that I never could have dreamed. So I, I, I just, it was like a college education. I knew what it was like to be in a rock band. I knew what the girls were like backstage. I knew what how managers talk to people. It was really going to college because I observed a lot. And, and because of that, I had privy to a lot of great things I wouldn't have had otherwise. So we did the album with Velvet and then I had a chance to travel. The album didn't do anything. Years later, what somebody did is they brought Velvet into the studio. Thanks for listening because I'm just giving you a heads up on this. So they asked Velvet to overdub some guitar. They took stereo, they made it mono, put that on the left and Velvet's over dubs were on the right. So that sucked. That's a very early 60s thing, isn't it? Yeah, but they did this... I wasn't around when he did it. Somebody probably, because he also did a thing about uh, Electric Ladyland too, being there, he was interviewed because he was at some of the sessions, by the way. And so what they did was it was sucked. They call that the rock mix. And I hear it, I go, this stinks because Velvet didn't originally play that. Plus it, it squashed the stereo. The soul mix allegedly is great because it's the full mix without the overdubs. And you can really hear that 
uh, Bruce, uh, Tim uh, McGovern was our drummer. Later on, he played guitar for the Motels, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. And married her. And I've seen him recently. He's a great guitar player. Another capital act. Yes, exactly. I think they were signed pretty much after. So it's Missing Persons. We'll get to later. Right, sure. But his drumming, if he didn't play drums in that, he was he played Mitch Mitchell stuff, but his own way. That's why the album is as good as it is, by the way, in my opinion. His drumming is fantastic. And it, it, without that, I mean, my bass playing was good. But man, his drumming carried it. Family Production released a vinyl and record date four years ago. And hearing it, I am proud of it because it's the first album I did. And Velvet wrote some really good songs. Madonna, the opening song, is a pretty cool song. I've been possessed by the devil. Lord, it got so bad I can't sleep at night. So I swim to see a vision. I've been searching for a God in life. Yes, 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 yes. Excuse me, gentlemen, it's very cool. And that's when Velvet was trying to sing like Mick Jagger. I can't remember what song it is, but there is at least one or two songs where his vocal style is definitely trying, it sounds to me anyway, that he's trying to bring Jimmy in his vocal. Well, he sounded like Jimmy had the same quality. And he did sound, when I play it, they don't even listen to the guitar playing. They go, it sounds like Jimmy singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Velvet had a good voice. And, and anyway, so that's the saga of, okay, I, I got to say one more thing. You're going to love her. So I stopped playing with Velvet. I uh, went to England to live there in 70, uh, uh, middle part of 73. And that's when I saw a lot of the great groups, you know, that was happening in those years. I met, because I met Rose Taylor, I got to meet George Harrison, which I did a session with later. Jagger, I went to his house and heard outtakes of um, Ghost Head too. And hearing some, because I met Rose Taylor, because I want, I ended up playing chess with Mick Taylor. I was 19, right? I got to jam with Mick Taylor, which was for me a dream. I just played blues thing. He was brilliant guitar player. Player, by the Which way. is where his heart was at, really. That's why he, he was supposedly left the stage. I knew who he was. And so I, I met a lot of cool people. And and just anyway, I met this girl at the Speakeasy with a very famous London club, a German blonde hair. I went home with her. And I was thinking, oh, this could be a great night. I'm looking at mail. You don't know where this is going. This is going to blow your mind. So I'm looking at the coffee table and I'm seeing letters. I'm going, Monica, Monica, Monica Denon. Oh, shit. So that's the girl, Jimmy. That's the bed of the girl, Jimmy Dyden. Oh, my Lord. Lord. Not the same apartment she moved out. Now, I immediately said, oh, my God, this is the girl Jimmy was seeing the night he died. That was his girlfriend. Did you leave immediately? You're damn right I did. Not because I was worried. Part of me wanted to go, oh, listen, I kind of know. So what happened? Or how, come, how long did you see that? I couldn't wait to leave and call Velvet. Okay. Can you imagine? You know, I had, you know, calling England. I mean, America from England was a lot of money. I had to borrow money to call Velvet. And I told him he screamed literally on the phone. <laughs> I said, I had to leave Velvet because it was like the fact that Jimi Hendrix died in her bed. Anyway, so there's my Jimi Hendrix tie-in. Because he died, we got the record deal. The person he died with, I meet. So I'm sure nobody else could tell that story. You heard it here first, folks. That was a Velvet thing. So the album's come out. I am proud of it. That was the first album I played on. And a lot of people like it, like yourself. But I, I hope mm. they hear the better version of it. Right. Just to hear that. But because of Velvet, I got to meet a lot of people and have memories that I, I certainly wouldn't have had if I was just a kid from Brooklyn. Also, our first drummer we had in Brooklyn was Mark Bell. 
who ended up playing in the Ramones, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Marky. He was like the first drummer we played with. And he was a great drummer. Yeah, look, I've, I watched a video that uh, he made. Like, it was something that was one of the bonus features on the Ramones End of the Century documentary, I think. And yeah. he's he's talking for a few minutes about, he's saying, oh, you know, a lot of so-called really professional drummers, they think that they're something special because they can do all this jazz stuff and they can do all this really tricky stuff. And I can do that shit. And he goes and shows some really fancy jazz chops. And he says, but they can't do what I do, which is for an hour. They can't do that for more than 30 seconds. So one of the reasons we played with Mark is the only drummer in Brooklyn that could play like John Bonham if he wanted to. After having seen that little video, I 100% believe that. That's He's um, really, he was really good. Do you know he had a twin brother who played guitar? No, I did not know that. Fred, yeah. It was pretty trippy, by the way. But Mark was great. So anyway, just now that's the Velvet story. But he was a dear friend of mine, by the way. It wasn't just playing. I did move away and it, I was very, he was very proud that I achieved success with a band like the Knack as a dear friend. It, it meant a lot to him personally. So me as well. He, he passed away, unfortunately, uh, in like 2002, I believe. I want to ask about another rock luminary that you ended up playing with. And I believe the rest of the band play with, which was Arthur Lee of Love. Yeah, yeah. I got a chance to play with Arthur Lee. He had a TV show in LA he was going to do. And I met somebody who played with him. I feel the drummer at the time. So he brought me in. I rehearsed with Arthur. Arthur was going through one of those uh, extreme drug issues where he'd like play some songs and then he just fall to the floor and laugh or act crazy, you know? So I did a TV show with him. And at that time, the record company wasn't sure if he can tour. And I got an offer to go with somebody to Boston, somebody I'd met who had some gigs in Boston. He liked me. And I said, if you give me a round trip ticket, I'm going to go. So that's what I did. And I also played with Randy California as well. Randy was brilliant and a lot of head, but he knew Bruce Gary because of Bruce Gary. I played this couple of shows with him and Bruce. And that was early on before he came. But anyway, so Arthur Lee was pretty funny, but he was losing his mind. The album was called Vindicator, I believe. Love jumped through my window last night and left the The thing is, like probably a lot of people who heard of love years after the fact, my introduction was via Forever Changes. And then you go back to the earlier stuff and you think, wow, this is a million miles away from Forever Changes. And part of his brilliance, or at least the songwriting brilliance on on that album, is they're not your standard verse, chorus, verse, chorus pop songs. It's pretty much almost like, oh, I I don't even know how to describe it, but I'll go here. Now I'll go here. Now I'll go here. It's sort of like every song is going somewhere in a non-structured way. Right. it still works as great pop songs. Well, who would ever think that Little Red Book was written by Bert Bacharach? Uh, yes, that absolutely. My favorite people are arrangers because a song, yeah, yeah. A, a songwriter, you know, you, you bring something into the world and that's something to be praised. But someone who can listen to something and say, I'm going to do something different with that, really, full respect. And that showed you what, you know, how they turned it around. Just awesome. And just saying, so Love was one of those. And, and The Doors, of course, I had seen, they were very unique. And the sound, again, producers and groups were able to be unique before they were big money makers and everybody had expectations and wanted to pigeonhole their style. That's just an option. Anyway, that happened to us too, by the way.
talk about covers. You've already gone and mentioned that you did Heartbeat on the first album, The Hard Way by The Kinks on the second album. On the video that you do live at the Carnegie Hall, you're doing a version of Hard Day's Night there. Go bring in the Beatles connection again. Well, that was like, that was an FU to the critics out there. I'll explain that later. <laughs> okay. You did a version of Nowhere to Run by Martha and the Vandellas. Yeah, you got uh, it. On the House of Blues album, which I promise I want to come to, you do a medley of tequila and break on through, and you do Last Train to Clarksville. Now, considering how many artists over the years have said, we're just going to take time out, we're going to do a, a covers album because these are the songs that influenced us to become musicians in the first place. Was there ever any talk of you guys just saying, right, we're just going to do a whole covers album? Well, if, if they took our output over the years, we'd have two albums. So what else did you guys do? In the beginning, we did come a little bit closer, Jay and the Americans. Mm -hmm. We did that. There's an album they released live on uh, Omnivore Records. It said the knack in 68 or sexy, no, 78, 79 in LA. So we did that song, Come a Little Bit Closer, which was a great song. We did it our way. We did, uh, If You Want Me, It's All Right, Adam Faith. If You Want Me, It's All Right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, in fact, I think you guys did that at the 3X, the, the Melbourne gig. Because oh, we did. I'm pretty sure I remember hearing that on the live uh, radio broadcast and tape it. So yes, I do remember that. And that was a cover we did. Now, the thing was, because when we jammed at rehearsal, we go off and jam, Bruce and I and Burton. And Doug, we, we knew every song. I mean, we just, you know, we play it. So a lot of the times we throw things in the sets earlier on. Uh, we love the Kinks, by the way. I mean, they were great. No, that's no secret. Whenever we were rehearsal, now Tequila Break On Through was sometimes, you know, we just jammed a rehearsal, right? Sometimes we did Dora songs, which we ended up doing with Manzarek. We did Love Me Two Times. We did Whiskey Bar, which is a great encore song. We, uh, there's a live thing of us doing that, I think on a reissue of the second album. We always come up with things. We did uh, Beatles. We did, um, sometimes we do, and you, I have a live tape somebody sent us, and you break insane. We did Everybody's Got Something to Hide But Me and My Monkey, which is our favorite song. can't do that. Uh, later on, there's a live thing about CBGBs. We did Lawyers, Guns, and Money. We loved him. We did Cinnamon Girl, which is a live thing. It's on Doug's. They released a Doug Figer album, but they had some live tracks we did. You guys, you ought to search out these tapes and put this out. We did Hendrix. We did Are You Experienced? Oh, man. Live at CBGB's. You can watch it. Without Bruce, but Billy Warp is a great New York drummer, by the way. But when we did it, we did it at Berkeley. When Doug would break his string, he was like, great. And we jammed. Okay. That was the cue. I mean, we do anything. Burden would start. I mean, we could do Cream Song. We, we did Crossroads. We could do anything. Because again, we were real musicians. We weren't just limited. I mean, we loved Jeff Beck and Doug would go off and we, we literally, I mean, last train to Clarksville, we always screw around with. It just ended up, we did it that night. Uh, we did that song with Dave Edmonds' song, uh, I Knew the Bride. We did that live and we did this on an album with Terry Bowes got Zoom. It, it's on that album. Uh, well, actually it's on Rhino's. We did covers and they, they put that on a separate album. Not on the, that album, but there was like Rhino Gold or something. But the Knack and, and Retrospective. 
and we, we did an F song. So we basically did what we wanted to do and we were good enough where we could pull it off and, and tequila break on through. I mean, we would jam on break on through and one day Burns, Burns a great slide player, which he never gets credit for. The end of the game, that's him doing Thank slide on that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's brilliant guitar playing, slide. And so uh, we're playing, now that's one of the fastest songs. I play along with myself anyway, just to remember what I played and get in shape. That song's a real MF to play. Oh, yeah. Bruce, Bruce! <laughs> and he's still pushing it. And Wave Up 2 is another song like that, which is original, but uh, that's another song. We could start at one tempo, we speed it up, we, and it comes right back to the same tempo. That's a real gift to be able to do that. Bruce was like that, you know, fantastic. So again, and we did um, a Traveling band too by Creedence Clearwater. Oh, nice, nice. We do that live. So, in other words, yeah, I would love to put something together. We did a hard day's night. We did Come On Everybody at Carnegie Hall, which is, you know, Eddie was uh, Eddie Cochran's one. Yeah, so we just love music and we could throw it in, literally. Another thing that was unique about us to a degree is we could do that. And, and I love covering songs we grew up with that were fantastic songs. You know what I mean? We could do a Burt Bacharach song. One of the truly great songwriters of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, we can riff on anything. So, anyway, that's why, again, and not that anybody cares, but I'm proud of that we were, we can do that. You know, we, we did Carnegie Hall when we did Hard Day's Night. It's been a Doug started, but before we did that, he started quoting Dylan. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are a change about the critics and their pens, you know, right? Putting him down. And then we did Hard Day's Night. He goes, fuck him. This is for you. <laughs> that went over real well with the New York Times. Get it, Doug. Don't stick your foot in your mouth. Leave. He did a great show. Don't screw it up. I tell the critics to go screw themselves, right? Anyway, uh, it, uh, that was, we, of course, the Beatles, were, the Stones, the Who, all those great groups always influenced us. There was an L.A. band called Wonderments, which sort of got absorbed into Brian yeah, Wilson's yeah, band. Yeah, yeah. And their albums, particularly their album Bali, sounds to me yeah. like what you guys were doing, which was absorbing everything that you love. It was all their songwriting, but you had, you know, their Who-influenced song. They had their Beach Boys, obviously, influenced songs. They had Very their Kinks so, influenced yeah. song. But, uh, and it sounds to me like, you know, they adopted the same sort of thing that you guys did. You weren't just Beatles, or you loved all this music, and why wouldn't you take everything into it? Well, we were the sum of the parts. We were radio. We were pop radio. When you could earn the playlist of what people played that we in the top 20 of the 68, 69, 70, 71, you'd be amazed to have they play all those different groups and different music. We love black music. I mean, there's an outtake from Serious Fun album where we do a blues song, Down With The Blonde. It's fucking great. Burton was a great blues player. Doug can sing blues too. So anyway, I'm just saying I love the versatility, not only of us, but the music scene at the time. And, you know, again, I, I think that's part of the neck legacy. And just mentioning drummers having played with, you know, uh, Billy Ward on Serious Serious fun. I don't know if you're familiar with that album. I have heard it. That's probably the album I've listened to the least because the production on that, it sort of thought, just for me, I thought I'd love to have heard those songs paired back, at least production-wise. John was friends with Doug from Detroit. Right. So we called him and he said, basically all those takes were really done pretty quick, by the way. Again, we didn't screw around. They invented our musicianship was such. And uh, Rocket of Love became an FM hit, by the way. And which, I mean, a top 10, whatever, who cares? But they, they, it was memorable. And then the record company 
didn't we didn't get a chance to get the video out because Red Company felt you know lost their stuff. So again, a failed chance. But that album was good. John was trying to make us a little more relevant, and I think the drums sound the bass. It's well well produced, and I, my favorite song was a serious fun one day at a time. It could have been a good single and rocker to love. I want to sort of like turn it around now. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, obviously, my Sharona has been covered and parodied to death, but were there any other covers of Knack songs by artists that you particularly like? Now, there was one that came to my attention when it was, I don't know, three years ago or so. It was uh, one year during Hanukkah where yeah. uh, Dave Grohl went and did every night a, di- a different Jewish songwriter I and get frustrated. I know. Now, that song should have been our next single, by the way. I love that song. say previously in an interview that you'd submitted your song Harder on You for consideration to the film That Thing You Do and I actually heard a version online of The Knack doing That Thing You Do which was you know just wonderful gorgeous pop but tell me a little bit about that whole thing how you came to submit that song well I had written you know I was living in Malibu at the time which was a great place I, I was friends with Bill Hudson you know from the Hudson Brothers mm. and I wrote Harder on You previously but I knew they were collecting songs for that thing you do because Bill knew some publishers so they're still looking for songs so I had cut that song actually I did demoed it with Bruce on drums believe it or not mm-hmm. so I brought it into Bill's studio I said can you do a vocal for me he's a great singer right so he did a vocal we actually it's a demo track we sent it in but they had the, all the songs already for the movie and that's why we didn't get it on there it would have really worked well but it didn't happen so when we started doing Zoom it was a great album because we were all working together just Bert and Bruce and myself not Bruce I mean uh, Doug because Bruce had quit again and then we gave him a chance to come back but he did long story I'll get into that tomorrow or tomorrow so um, I played it for Burden first because I knew Doug had his ego and I didn't want to fucking deal with him so I said to Burden hey what he said it's a great song so he says I think maybe we can add a little bit in the bridge to make it more knackish and I said well, great so I did give Burden a uh, half songwriting credit but I, you know I, we could have done it the way I wrote it but I felt he was right so Doug when he heard it he goes fuck yeah so he actually did some did it live before we recorded it and I thought it was it, it was right know if they ever got their stuff together might have released it as a single but they never got that far they never promoted the album fortunately it's unusual because like Rhino were mostly known as a reissue label I don't think I'd ever heard of anything of them doing like a new album so as we're touring with the great Terry Bozio which I'll get into next time we talk some of the idiosyncrasies of Terry we loved it and we were close again we cut 
cut that song and Rhino didn't get it into Tower Records and as a result nobody ever knew about it. So that might have been a single as, as, as fate would have it. There was a lot of good songs in that album. I'm really proud of the album. The songwriting craft was excellent by the way. Mm, I agree. Later for that later album, I mean normal was not as normal as thing. I'll talk about that, but it wasn't very good comparatively speaking. And Zoom had a lot of really good songs. And by the way, we did no matter what. We recorded it for a bad thing of tribute. We did a really good version of that. And uh, we did that thing you do with your girls talk, which was also in the Rhino release, Elvis Costello song. And you know, I mean, so we there, there's more covers now. We'll pause for a quick break. Prescott's gonna go have a cup of coffee. I'm gonna go have a cup of coffee, and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk more about the knack. And- we have to, we gotta talk about England, living in England, and what an experience that is a meeting. Anywhere you want to take it, Prescott. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll be back in a moment. I know it's going to be harder on. I know it's going to be harder on. I know it's going to be harder on you. To many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. Not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. (laughs) What makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, the Gigi Allen story, Ishtar, and Yellow Submarine. As well as roundtable film talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at See Here. That's S-E-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. (laughs) Welcome back to episode 157 of Love That Album. I'm continuing my chat here with bassist of The Knack and of the Velvet Turner Group and of Arthur Lee, Prescott Niles. Yes, thank you again for... uh for playing with me, <laughs> literally, and enjoying this. Thank you so much. Before we started recording, I made mention to you that a guest on my other podcast, See Here, was the great Alan Arkush, who directed Rock and Roll High School. And he told me that while he was still at NYU Film School, he was working at Fillmore East in New York. And I believe that you, as a teen, had spent many hours, uh, many shows at Fillmore East. Now, I want to get a feel for some of the shows that you attended, what the venue was like. I mean, because I mean, on this side of the world, we have heard of Fillmore East. We know how legendary yeah. it is, but you know, not growing up in New York, it was not a venue I could ever attend. I do want to ask you about one specific show. I don't know if you attended it, but Alan was telling me about one of the shows that he was working at was The Who playing at Fillmore East. And there was a scenario where I think the building across the road had caught fire. You and got it. No, were you in, were you, in attendance at that show? I was not there that night. But Townsend had a thing that, that happened at, at uh, Woodstock as well, which we could touch on, where the fire commissioner, I guess Townsend didn't know about a fire when he got on stage. And Townsend said, as happened before, that's his territory. If anybody comes on the stage unannounced, he just kicked him off the stage. <laughs> 
he didn't know about. Well, they arrested Daltrey and him went to jail for that night and they got bailed out the next morning. And then, of course, at Woodstock, there's that famous kick, which I witnessed live, where Abby Hoffman got up stage and started talking all this crap and Daltrey just booted him right off the stage. I was going to ask if you'd seen that. Yeah, I saw that. And it was remarkable because, again, you know, I understand, but he, he said he just is in a rage. Nobody can get up there and, and say anything. So the crowd loved it. It, it was one of those things that the who were kind of unique in the fact that when they were on there, they were serious, even though they were comical and expressive and goofy. That's another thing. They had a great sense of humor. To be able to play what they played seriously, have a sense of humor, made fun of themselves, especially when they did a quick one while he's away, uh, which is one of the, the first opera. It's Townsend, the mini opera. It's wonderful, filled with humor and sarcasm. And again, as evidence in rock and roll circus, just phenomenal. No wonder for years, uh, the Rolling Stones didn't want to release a rock and roll circus because they were afraid that The Who had gone and basically stolen the show. They really did. And I think the other problem was Brian Jones slept through the whole show. So, uh, <laughs> And by the way, my son Gabe, one of the reasons he wanted to play drums and he became a, was watching that as a child, with, especially with the water on the toms. You know, that was, uh, it was someone looked like so much fun. But uh, anyway, Fillmore changed. It was something called the Anderson Theater first. I saw the Yardbirds with Jimmy Page play there, probably as end of 67, 68. So that was like my first real concert in terms of in Manhattan. That Anderson Theater, and they also released a live album too, the Yardbirds. Uh, one of the, they, they held it back for years and it came out. Then they moved to Fillmore, or maybe that same theater became Fillmore. And the second show I saw was The Who. And that's when Townsend had a spangled jacket on. I remember the bass that was to play was actually one he kind of modified to make it this weird thing. I was a big fan of I Can See for Miles. And that was one of the only tours they did it. So that blew me away. Now, when Fillmore started becoming regular, of course, uh, I'd do anything I could, you know, five bucks, six dollars to go there it was remarkable. And that to me was like an encyclopedia of the music scene at the time. I mean, you had folk music, you had Tim Harden playing, you had Richie Hayes. Who was, I mean, he was playing on the street too. He was playing there, an incredible string band with their classical roots. And then, of course, you had all the blues players. Bill Graham was smart enough to introduce B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, Buddy Guy. I mean, all these great blues players. Can't he play there? You know, as well as that part of the night, he'd have in the mixed show where you have a bit of everything. So Bill had a vision. He was a tough guy. He had he had San Francisco one going as well. So he was operating on both coasts. But he was so brilliant because he really brought the music not only, but he had the variety of, it wasn't a variety show like they used to do before. Before, where everybody had 10 minutes, he would find a way to, to merge and have groups play with each other. That was remarkable. When I saw Jimi Hendrix for the first time, Sly Stone opened for him in 68. And it's like, wow, you know, I mean, how can he do this? And I saw Led Zeppelin, the first US tour when they opened for Iron Butterfly. And Iron Butterfly were booed unmercifully when they played after Led Zeppelin. Oh, man. Especially the poor drummer who had to play a drum solo. <laughs> <laughs> Not an easy thing to follow, Bonzo. No, no. So then you had that. I saw, remember that song, Fire? Uh, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. I am the god of hellfire! 
he played Fillmore and they actually lowered him from the ceiling with flames and like a like a cauldron. That just blew me away. I mean, that was like from another planet. Jefferson Airplane uh, was one of the earlier shows I saw too. And I who cannot fall in love with Grace Slick in her miniskirt. And Jack Cassidy was just an amazing bass player. When he played it, he had a sound that was more pronounced than anybody at that time. So that band had a big influence on me as well, let alone uh, 10 years after before Woodstock would play there often. And they were incredible. And Allman Brothers, of course, made it famous. I saw Delaney and Bonnie play there with Eric Clapton. I mean, think about that. And it was affordable, which is what to me was incredible. Bill passed away, of course, and had a legend of being a real hard ass, so to speak. But he really gave everybody in New York and, and everywhere the ability to really get every style of music without having to go to three concerts. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm presuming that they would have played Fillmore West at some stage. Did you ever get to see the tubes? No, they did, though. But I didn't. I saw them when they were touring years ago. With Missing Persons, we did play with the re- revived tubes. Oh, they right. played a couple of shows with us. Yeah, only a couple of players were in there, but they were great. They were very unique and, and certainly nobody could be like them, you know? It's just because you mentioned the crazy world of Arthur Brand, and I'm thinking, wow, what other theatrical rock bands are they? Well, duh, the tubes. Well, yeah, but he, Arthur, was just nuts. I mean, I found that later. Peter Townsend actually produced some of the record. And Carl Palmer, I believe, played drums. Oh, wow, didn't know. Oh. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And by the way, they were amazing too, uh, unique and special in terms of the, and I saw Keith Emerson in the Nice, which played Fillmore East as well. That's how I knew who they were. And I got to tell you a funny Velvet story. Velvet, because Velvet could sound like Jimi Hendrix when he wanted to, he would call Fillmore, ask to speak to Kip, one of the guys who was managers, and he'd go, hey man, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, Jimmy, you know, and Velvet's, <laughs> coming, Velvet's coming down there. So, you know, just, uh, so we get into free all the time right <laughs> okay one time velvet called this is, i've told this before he goes yeah hey dude man Kip goes okay hold on hey uh bill uh jimmy's on the phone and bill goes yeah and velvet's going uh yes jimmy say hey motherfucker jimmy's right here 10 feet away from me you call again <laughs> you ever call again velvet i'll break your legs goodbye and he hung up. <laughs> Oh, How's classic. that for being caught with a hand in, in the cookie jar? Oh, classic. But anyway, so that was, again, being able to go to Fillmore and be part. And Jeff Beck, of course, was a big favorite of group. And Rod Stewart, of course, the unknown Rod Stewart became quite the amazing and iconic lead singer as well. And uh, it was just remarkable. So now that you're talking about Fillmore, and of course, that branched out. There were other venues and places. But to me, that was the best combination of acts ever. And who were remarkable, as you know, in that album, by the way, who it leads is on, on the way they recorded that, which again, Townsend wasn't happy. They recorded every show. But that to me was the most amazing. The, the recording quality and how they play was still uh, is, a, is a benchmark for everybody, you know? For any band that we hear that them say, yeah, they were better in a live context. But I think that The Who, it's interesting because uh, we were speaking before we started recording that one of our very favorite albums is The Who Sell Out. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. marvelous piece of work. And yet you would never say, unless you knew, you wouldn't know that it was the same band on Who Live at Leeds and the Who Sell Out. One's a Baroque pop band and one's like a proto-metal force of nature. Well, that's exactly it. And when they even did Tommy, Kit Lambert, who was managing and producing them, they they still didn't get, didn't even get a chance to put some of the electric guitars on. And then was, it was very staged. You know, he wasn't playing his sound and Keith Moon played parts well. That's why when they did it live and then that, uh, expanded Who at Leeds, it's remarkable. 
And I think, again, they were much better live than on record because they couldn't capture the the insanity. I mean, Daltrey was brilliant with his twirling the mic. I mean, spinning it like a lasso. And Keith Moon, you have to see him to believe him. That's all I can say. And, and I was lucky to see him a number of times with The Who. You just laugh, laugh and then get excited. And then Whistle would make a face like, you're going, what's this going on? And Townsend was <laughs> And Townsend was just like nobody else. Played great. He wasn't a great lead guitar player, but he was a great chordist lead guitar player. To me, one of the best rhythm guitar players. Absolutely. And he, and he did a lot of punks and he did pre-punk stuff. He did a lot of the eighth notes thing as well. So we both agreed that that group had a big influence. And when Enwistle passed away, my son was grieving because we he grew up listening to that. And, uh, you know, for him, that was like a, a real hero kind of in a way because he appealed to kids. And some of his lyrics like, you know, Silas Stingy, you know, and, and Boris the Spider, of course. Mm. He was like that. He was a very brilliant, unique guy. So I'm glad we can talk about The Who at this point. I read a biography of The Who written by Dave Marsh called Before I Get Old. And in this... There, he goes and says that when it came round to uh, for Townsend to do Tommy, and he knew he needed a couple of songs about these unsavory characters, Cousin Kevin and yes. Colony, and he said, I can't write this, but you're the That's one right. with the, the black sense of humor, the black comedic uh-huh. sense of humor. You do it. And he knew that that was Entwistle's forte and just, yeah, perfect songs. And once again, his voice, that deep, deep baritone made it happen. So I'm so glad we can talk about them in and the fact that they still have the ability to play and they survived is remarkable. Of course, you know, it's a different who, but nevertheless, it's it's remarkable. And they and they enjoy doing it. And Daltrey, too, had a lot of issues doing the who for years. I mean, I give them a lot of credit and did a lot of charity work as well. So um, I'm a big fan. So again, I'm I'm lucky I was able to, it, I can't even explain, like seeing Jimi Hendrix, I told you when I last talked to you, it's hard to explain exactly what you saw because it wasn't like every night he hit the mark the same way every time. It's all about interpretation. And I think that era of groups, whether it's Led Zeppelin or Jeff Beck or Jethro Tull is another example of extreme stuff. There was always jamming, cream especially. They just jammed, just like jazz. Some nights you just, you couldn't believe that they changed what they did and it was even better that you remembered it. So I think that's one of the, the things for me that was exciting about that time period where they had the luxury to jam and everybody did and everybody jammed differently too, by the way, which I, I loved. That affected all of it in the knack as well. We all, Bruce Gary especially, we were able to go off in any given direction and make it interesting where we were allowed to. You know, I mean, the pop format was what it was. But that's why Tequila Break On Through, you know, from the live album, for instance. You know, the day destroyed a night. Night divides the day Try to run, try to hide Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side, yeah if you listen to that, we go off in a lot of places and Burton's solo was just a remarkable. Again, I always point Burton out because I don't think he gets enough credit for being as multi-talented as he was, let alone Burton. You know, the ability to play a lot of different styles. And as I mentioned to you, there's a version of us doing Are You Experienced from CBGB's. A live version of it. It's pretty damn good. We also always did not fade away into Mona as well. You know, doing other people's songs, again, could be a real a kind of like a testimony to their greatness and the fact we can reinterpret our way and make it work and i like hard way by the way on our second album i thought that the, was the really kinks. cool yeah 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 yeah, yeah. The kinks. and it fit our style too and it's interesting because like most people it seems who cover kink songs are doing like from the classic 60s era and i think the 70s era is often overlooked and that one was a 70s era song wasn't it 
70s and again you know a lot of people forget or never even heard author i mean they spent a lot of time doing that album and because of tommy and because of problems they had with management and raising the money they never got a chance to do it the way they wanted to mm. and and that's a remarkable album actually the, the writing and the the uh, the melodies young and innocent days is one of my favorite songs uh they had written actually you know shangri-la i think is on that shangri-la's incredible and victoria i love too so they but they did satires and on uh culture english culture and they were wonderful and the early kinks were great too i love the simplicity of the chords you know the heavy chords that dave played and again they progressed and they, you always wanted to hear another kink variation all day and all of the night or you really got me which they did and they're wonderful too not as remembered as fondly as other groups are though unfortunately one of my favorite kink songs is one that i, I think it was a big single at the time but not many people talk about it now is everybody's going to be happy that's a great song. Fantastic pop song. That's wonderful. Yep. I was going to say, I like it. All their albums have like the King Controversy. They always had K's and K's in their titles. They made some very cool stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, they sure did. And uh, they were very cool. So anyway, uh, they influenced us to a degree and, you know, maybe more so than appears to the, to the naked ear. How's that? <laughs> it all sounds fun to the naked ear, but it don't really happen that way at all or something like that. No, it doesn't. <laughs> In my reading up over the last few weeks about various Knack stories, and it comes out that you had gone and recorded a song for Shanghai Surprise, uh, the film that was with George Harrison's Handmade Studios and a song that ended up over the closing credits. But was your version actually put in the film? Well, what was the story? How did you, how did you get involved with George Harrison? What was he like? Well, here's what I would happen. First of all, when I lived in England, uh, as I mentioned, I think before I was going to, I had met uh, Rose Taylor, but also... And Rose was mixed wife. So because I met Rose Taylor, she knew a lot of people and a lot of cool places to go. But my manager also was uh, Jamie Granger, Stuart Granger's son, famous actor. And he knew a lot of people and his girlfriend ran a modeling agency. So Bob Tins, what I'm saying is I went to a lot of clubs, let's say, and like to going out and dance and all that. There's a club called Tramp. So one night I was there and I was dating a, a, a girl, a very attractive English woman who was best friends with a girl I worked with Derek Taylor, mm -hmm. who's George Harrison's publicist, his Beatles publicist. So in the course of the evening, we hung out, we ate together, and we everybody would dance. You know, to get up and dance. Actually, uh, Stevie Wonder's Innovisions was out at the time. So I actually met George, and we all ended up dancing together. So I met George at that time period. So anyway, in '86, I got a phone call from a producer, Bob Rose, and I didn't know what it was. He said, "Hey, Prescott, and I was, yeah, man, I got you know, I know you, I know you work, and I was told uh, this might be a great thing for you to be interested in." So. Uh, come down to Sound Sound City, a great studio, which they did the movie about, obviously. Right, right. And uh, we got a session. He didn't tell me what it was. So I said, okay, I went down there, of course. And when I walked in the door, he goes, listen, man, you know, just be cool. It's George Harrison. And I started laughing. I'm going, George Harrison, really? You know, okay. So the good thing was I met him, but I forgot that I was in the knack. 
at that moment. And I, was, I, I, I was like, okay, at least I met him once, right? That was a nobody when I'm, you know. So um, I walk in there and I meet Jim Keltner was a drummer. Yeah, wow. And Bruce Gary didn't know Jim Keltner anyway. And Lawrence Struber was a guitarist who played From with Wings. McCartney. Yep. Yeah, and good friend to this day and everything. So I, I meet George and I'm going, hey, George. Hey, what's up? And I'm going, I think I met a Mitch. I was dating Kathy. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, how you doing? And he goes, yeah, listen, uh, I dig the knack record, you know? And immediately I was like, whoa. Well, how could you not have heard it, right? Somebody would have mentioned me to him anyway. I'm going, okay. At least I don't feel like I'm one foot off the ground. I'm 10 feet off the ground, you know? <laughs> at least at least I was a musician. I wasn't auditioning. At least he knows I'm good enough to play bass, okay? So that was a big start. So anyway, I was in the control room with him, which was real luxury. I felt it was better for me because he was like, you know, he's riffing and singing and playing. It's the first time he's been in the studio in years, by the way. So it was kind of like he was very private. And I knew it was a special session, you know? I was getting married at some point after that. So we kind of talked a little bit about my fear and loathing of possibly getting married, which was the greatest thing I ever did because of my children today, which is the funniest things you meet in life. But anyway, so when we started cutting the song, I had a chord chart in front of me. And George Harrison's music has very odd chord changes. It's diminished, augmented, you know, things like that, flat nines. So it wasn't just your normal chord chart of playing roots, you know? And then I'm playing with the great Jim Keltner. And Jim Keltner played so deep in his pocket that in Bruce Gary, Jim was, was his favorite drummer. I knew I couldn't rush, you know, and I couldn't be impulsive. So here I am with thinking to myself, oh God, please don't let them not stop the take we're doing because of me. That's all I could think of. I didn't want Jim Keltner to go, hey, Prescott, you're rushing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want George to go, well, I didn't like that run you did. That's That was me, nervous, but confident. You can, you know, I'm reading the notes. I'm kind of inventing as we went. Anyway, we did a couple of takes. Nobody stopped because of me. How's that for achievement? That's my big achievement, right? It, it, it wasn't takes. me, even though I did the knack. Didn't matter. And George dug it and everybody dug it. And I was so happy. So I, I do have a tape of that. Now, that was song was used as a trailer for the movie. So okay. the version I did was a trailer for the movie. Now, George went back to England. I was expecting to go to England to record a couple of more songs. Bob Rose was the producer. Unfortunately, George, and fortunately, George, uh, Jeff Lynn was living in his neighborhood, or at least maybe was buying a house there. So once they hung out together, that was the end for me. But it was the greatest album that George ever made, wasn't it? It was Cloud Nine, wasn't it? Yep. So uh, I didn't get a chance to play with him. I didn't get a chance to call off my marriage because I was scared and going to England. They, I can't get married, honey, because I'm going to England with George, with George Harris. That was my out. <laughs> Because I was nervous, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I don't know. And I was nervous and I thought maybe that was going to be my out. And it wasn't. So I'm glad I didn't say that. But I mean, to go to England and record with George Harrison, are you kidding? Mm -hmm. So anyway, it turned out to be what it was. And I'm grateful that in retrospect that I had a chance to, to be with George considering all the bad things that happened after with cancer and the, the home invasion. I mean, it's terrible what happened to him. But he was in a good mood and he was, he was wonderful to work. And it's a cherished memory again because I did meet him which at least broke and at least he knew you know I mean he knows a lot of albums but I'm glad he knew what I did because and again that's a tribute to what they did being in the knack and at least knowing the Beatles is another reason why we're all here together that day so that's my story and by the way Doug was insanely jealous oh I bet he was Jack 
So I want to return to the knack because knackland. Let's return to knackland, and I picked out three songs that I absolutely adore, and just wanted to get your thoughts on what you may remember about the recording of them, anything about arrangements, and these are songs that most people, except for us diehard knack fans, may not even know about. And these three songs are in a way very unknack like, or at least not what you'd expect from if you only know the first couple of albums. So, uh, okay. One of these songs is one you mentioned yesterday. I can't remember if it's after the conversation or at the end of the conversation, but it was Lil Cal's Big Mistake. It's a great groove-laden song. And to my ears, it sounds like the sort of thing that would have been a great zombie song. I can just almost hear Colin Blundstone singing that. And because it's very keyboard heavy, it almost sounds like the sort of thing that Rod Argent would have played. You got it. Very much so. And that had a lot to do with Bird and the Bear. Bird and the Bear, those chord progressions like Steely Dan and like the people you mentioned, that was Burden's jazz influence. And if you listen to the solo we played, it had a very bebop sound to it, you know? And live was even better because we and Bruce again the drumming is just remarkable all the drum fills that lead from part to part was fantastic so and, and the lyric is a very very peculiar lyric as well if you really have to listen to it you know what I mean well I was going to ask we're Burton and or Doug big fans of film noir because it sounds like something yeah, like they a were. pulpy detective novel or, or a old film noir yeah even the first line is about a, something affair right and, and what's remarkable is that song Sweet Dreams was the first perfect segue from that one, you know, it ends with the sirens and everything. Mm-hmm. And then we go into this Beatlesque. I did my Rick and Back of Paul McCartney invitation on that one. <laughs> but it's a great line, but the drum in it, that's a very cool song too. And it fit in the transition of it, actually. It was very cinematic. But that was a very cool song, by the way, Little Cows. And, and again, it, when we did it live, the soloing at the end was pretty amazing as well. So did you guys go into recording round trip with the idea of wanting to do something that sounded completely different to what you had on Get the Knack and But the Little Girl? understand because that album I mean it's got some stuff that sounds like it could have fit on the first two but there's a lot of stuff that sort of says well you know we do other things as well and and that's why I love that album so much well the great thing is it wasn't that anything was done deliberately I just think after we broke up you know after the uh, second album for reasons I'll get into later which is always a good thing to go backwards Doug was I think a bit out of his mind because he basically when Bruce quit he called me one day I might have recorded it but I can't find it where he says I don't need Bruce Garrett, I get two drummers, you know, and we're going to go in and make an album. I don't care what we got to do. Well, that wasn't working, but I mentioned when John Lennon passed away, I think it was such a, a sobering moment. Our, one of our great, not heroes just because he, but of a great man hero who we grew up with. And again, becoming such a iconic figure in progressive peace movement, you know, being uh, just defining himself and didn't care what anybody thought. And I love the Plastic Ono band, the first album. I mean, you're coming out of the Beatles and he did the strip down. He was doing, you know, Arthur Janoff. He was doing that primal therapy, of course. Yes, yes. But being able to put it on a record and still have it be a cool record and write great songs. And it was sincere. That's remarkable. And so when, again, when he passed, I know it was a favorite. I got 
got a picture on my wall of John. It's actually signed by him. Not the one on person, but it, it meant a lot to us, but more so to Doug. So I called him after and I said, look, you know, I know we got our problems, but you know, we got it. We got at least, and we already was going in different directions. We uh, were putting a new group together. We were actually going to call, it's my play on words. We were going to, if the album ever came out, it would be called Dugout. Baseball Dugouts, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Dugout. Yeah. And while we split from Doug with our manager, Scott, we realized that Scott screwed us up with capital and really messed it up. So we fired him and then Doug came back. So we we're going to call the album Scott 3. Oh, you like that, huh? Yeah. Oh, God. Playing words. Well, anyway, you had to hear that because I thought it was great. So anyway, we decided we we're going to do an album. We tried to figure out who to produce. Well, Jack Douglas came up, of course, because he was a brilliant producer anyway. Did Cheap Trick, of course. Double Fantasy. Uh, Aerosmith and Double Fantasy. I think in a way it was the closest we can get to John. And we didn't know if Jack Douglas would agree to do it. To our chagrin, you know what that word means, of course, delight. He, <laughs> yeah, he said we thought we were a great band and said he would work with us. He came to Los Angeles and we went to Record Plant, you know, and we just right away, I mean, it was just like we had these songs kind of worked out, but he knew how to record us. And the, the opening song, Radiating Love, is definitely one of the most positive. That song should be a hit today. Because it's, it's such a happy, outgoing song. I think it's a great lyric Doug and Burton wrote together. And the, the groove on it and the middle section, by the way, it's Flo and Eddie doing some of the harmonies. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. What? They were in the studio with us, and they also sang in a couple of other tracks as well with us. But it's such a beautiful, uh, in the B section, when they're doing da-da-da-da-da, you know, that's mm-hmm. Flo and Eddie. That's a wonderful song. So again, not only did Jack get the sounds we never could have gotten, any any because Mike wasn't Jack Douglas. You know what I mean? And the, the, the bass and the drums were incredible. And of course, the vocals. And then you got Soul Kissing, which is one of my favorite songs, because it's like kind of like uh, Strange Brew in, the, in a way. It's got this groove, but it's Soul Kissing. How cool is it? Great. And then of Africa, as you know, you might have, well, you wanted to bring up some songs. So go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. That, I mean, I was going to go to a couple of songs off a couple of other albums, but happy to hear your memories of Round Trip. Africa, what a, gro- and that, it's another fantastic groove laden song that if you would have said to someone, hey, listen to this song from the knack if they only knew the first two albums they would they would never have guessed it i I was so happy to hear that wow this is something so different and I are huge Earth, Wind & Fire fans. You know, we saw him at the, right after we got back from Japan, second, you know, we just like, wow. So Burton, you know, and you could tell I'm doing a lot of funk in that song. I'm actually popping on a Knack album, okay? But Burton wrote that on keyboard to agree. And, and Doug, they came up with the idea to do like a tone poem. It's not like a melody, melodic song, but just parts of it, but it's more like a tone poem, really. Different approach, like Morrison might do. And Bruce's drumming, if you really, the tones, Jack Douglas, 
God, I played that for drummers I've worked with and didn't say who it was. They thought it might have been Billy Cobham or some other cats from, you know, Chick Corea. They couldn't believe it was an act. And live, we even did it better. And the solo burden played with the harmonies in the end was fantastic. And, you know, I give myself credit for being funky and nobody knew I could be, even though I was. And uh, Doug did a great job in that. So I love playing that song for people. They have no idea. And then, of course, the next song was She Likes the Beat, mm. which is to me a very cool lyric, a very cool groove. Very Elvis Costello-ish in a way. Yeah, it is. But it's got a big groove to it, you know? And then, of course, Just Wait and See, which we when we toured our first tour of Japan, that song was included. So that could have come out in the second album, actually, but it came out in the third album. I think it's a great pop song. And Burdens, again, plays a 12-string like Jim McGuinn, you know, Roger McGuinn, so sorry, who is really Jim, as you know, right? I did know it wasn't Roger. I didn't remember what the actual number, but yes, I did know it wasn't Roger. And the next song is a psychedelic song that sounds like uh, The Dirge with John Bonham on drums. How did, I don't know whose idea, maybe I'm presuming it was Doug's, to have that background Hebrew vocal in, in the middle of We Are Exactly. Like. And backwards vocals, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just... A, psychedelia i don't know if it was the french cigarettes or the indian food <laughs> or the cognac or the occasional sniff or two right. i'm not sure exactly the combination but it was all those things and then the second side opens which should have been the single the boys go crazy which is a perfect answer to good girls don't and i, I think it's got a great hook by the way in the drumming again it's been fantastic and then you got the other two we mentioned before and i love um it segue after sweet dreams of going to another lousy day in paradise which is i think not only a biographical song of what we were going through, but it's got Flo and Eddie are in that. Bill Hudson also sang in that background with his brother. And I think the bridge is fantastic. So that's a great song. Then Can't Pay the Devil and Boy Do We Ever, a country ballad, a nice, wonderful song, but who's into country? And then we ended with Art War, which is, of course, fantastic. I love country, but the knack is not country. Well, of course, mind you, Doug doing his tribute later on to Hank Williams. So that was how he was able to get his uh, oh, that was country leanings out. Well, we, I don't know if you ever saw this, by the way. Speaking of, we did this thing for this guy, Art Fine, and we played at the House of Blues. We did here Elvis night, and we did three Elvis songs with Bruce coming back to us after breaking up. And you got to hear, we killed it. And one of our favorite songs is Viva Las Vegas. And Bruce is playing Keith Moon on drums. You have to, anyway, this is aggression, but you have to hear that. I'm fine with that. So that's my summation of Round Trip. And even the critics liked it. They didn't have the hit single, but I think we got a lot of respect. I think it's one of the best produced and recorded albums. And and Jack speaks fondly of it. I've, I've run into him and talked to him. He actually said we're one of the best bands he's worked with because we were able to deliver without doing 100 takes. So anyway, that's it. So keep going. What are the songs you mentioned? The next song I want to get your recollections of. And once again, very atypical for what most people would have thought of as a next song is from Zoom and it's all in the all in all. Now, 
I know that for the longest time, you know, you had to put up with the, the bullshit of being called the new Beatles. Um, yeah. But this song to me actually is one song that really does sound very, very Beatlesque. It's something that sounds like it could have fitted on, I don't know, maybe Rubber Soul or Revolver, that arpeggiated guitar feel and that guitar solo in that. It sounds more like a post Beatles George Harrison with that little slide feel that Burton does. And we already spoke a little bit yesterday about what a great slide player. Yes, uh, yes. Burton, Burton was. But what are your recollections of the recording of that song or the arrangement of that song? That was pretty much Doug's vision. I think he co-wrote it with Oliver Lieber, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard it and everything, and there wasn't much to do. It was a psych- psychedelic tribute. I kind of liked it. it. It had a cool thing. But if you want to talk about Beat the Last, Everything I Do Makes Me Sad, that ballad. Everything I do. the Beatles you know the one that's on the first side anything I do mm-hmm. yep. yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah, yeah, like you right. know it sounds like that song we by the way Jack White played drums Jack picked with Rick Springfield and a, n- a number of people but he was a friend he's doing Ringo that song is so Beatles if you hear the solo so if you want to talk about the Beatles that's the one it's wonderful by the way it's a, it's a great song by the way and that's atypical as well but I, I, for a psychedelic song that song is very cool Zoom in general uh, I mean it still sounded like you know very poppy and maybe in the vein, maybe a, a more restrained. I don't know. I don't like the word restraint, but something that in a similar way to the first couple of albums, a really great pop rock album. But as I mentioned to you yesterday, it seemed like Burton's harmonies came to the fore very much on that album. Very much. And I think that was a really honest, the three of us at that point, Bruce, we came back, we did a couple of shows in LA. We had a rough idea of writing. We we ended up getting a different manager, Danny Sugarman. And Danny had worked with The Doors. Right. He wrote uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, that book about it. Yeah, yeah. And Danny, we came upon, he knew Bruce pretty well because Bruce actually taught, for The Doors movie, Bruce taught the guy how to play drums, who played, oh, wow. the, you know, taught him how to make it look right and everything but Danny Doug had done a solo album and Doug thought that maybe we he put that out and we do some of our, our no he said no you guys got to write a new album that, that ain't happening so we all got together and we were earnest Bruce unfortunately checked out he had business issues and him and Doug always had this thing you know and it's sad he really is very sad because they really did love each other it's very difficult to explain the ins and outs Bruce did have some arthritis and issues before he got cancer so to speak but, but that album we decided talking about drummers and Doug had met Terry Bozio and hung out with him and we all talked and Terry was really interested thought we were a great band and so here we go we wrote the songs we did demos ourselves at home I brought Harder on You which I mentioned which I hoped would have been in that thing you do but it ended up becoming on that album which I'm very grateful for and we rehearsed with Terry we cut a lot of tracks but that album had so many elements that were honest and there's another song I crafted called Tomorrow it's kind of a rockabilly riff I wrote that a change to make it happen. That solo section, the harmonies, a three-part Broadway musical harmonies. Thank you, Burton of Air. Well, because now that's his thing, isn't it? It's musical theater. 
he was very gifted. And when he started to do that and wrote a couple of plays, he almost had some success. And unfortunately, his writing partner did he had a problem and he passed away, right? You know, but it's very difficult to get a theatrical production, not only done in finance, but to get it on, you know, at a major venue, so to speak. But Burden did have a gift. And Doug, uh, so, you know, the, those two would get together and sing all the Broadway shows, which is remarkable. Doug's an actor, by the way. Did you notice? He liked an audience. He sure did. But he had craft and he filled with it, so to speak, you know, that particular combination was remarkable. So that appeared actually in that song we did. And Burden also played very interesting piano in that style. But apart from that song, Tomorrow, I like Mr. Magazine a lot, which had excellent harmonies. today. These writers, these magazines, you know, everybody's got a story, right? It's a brilliant care thing about all this crap that people write about. And it's an excellent lyric they wrote together. I really like it. And again, Pop is Dead is, a, I think, a great opening song. It's one of the better openers, I think, uh, since back in the old days, you know? And Terry's drumming is remarkable. Hey! Pop is Dead! Bring your shovel! as energetic as something like Let Me Out off the first album. Absolutely. And those fills are insane. But, and again, so when it, when that thing about that song is I've had people come up to me after a live show and go, hey, Pop is dead, so whose father passed away? <laughs> I go, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I oh said, it's, it's not literal, a pop music, okay? And it's actually a, br a brilliant lyric. And so there's a lot of songs, and Terry and Julie, I don't know if you know that song. Yes, Again, yes. it's a really cool riff and a great drum fill. And personally, I like a, a number of songs in that album. I thought it was a great effort. And it did get reviews. Ryan did not know how to promote an album. And also, now Danny Sugarman was influential with us and getting us to Rhino and everybody was excited. So Danny, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, he had cancer, but then he was on methadone for a while. And before the album came out, he passed away, unfortunately. So he couldn't really push the record label. And Rhino did not enable. We toured with Terry and we played half a tour. And I got a great story for you, by the way. And then, unfortunately, the Rhinos didn't get it in the store. So the album did liked and everything, but it didn't get a chance to really happen. I got to tell you about a Twilight Zone moment, if I, if, if you allow me, okay? Please. We played in Detroit. And whatever we did, sometimes Doug's brother would introduce us. And I don't know if you know anything about Doug's brother. He was a lawyer. I have heard about that, yes. And represented some dubious characters in lawsuits, okay? So he, this one particular time, we're promoting that, we're doing that tour. And, and one of our, our NAC fans who became, who I knew as a friend through the years, whenever we played Detroit, he went to the shows, okay? So before we play, he comes up to the dressing room and he's bringing this old guy with him. And we think it's probably his uncle or grandfather, you know? And I'm just, I'm talking to Bert. And I always had a thing with Bert. Whenever something was go wrong, I, we call it KK, which is not karma, uh. which means anything that could go wrong will. 
that was like we made up an axiomatic phrase. There were certain turning points in our career when there was a KK moment, which we knew was dubious and horrible, right? So as Doug's, as he's being introduced to people, he's shaking Doug's hand, Terry's, and I hear Jack Kevorkian. Now, the ethics of Dr. Death euthanizing people was debatable, okay? But why is he in the next dressing room? <laughs> oh, man. I looked at Bird and I said, we're, we're done, man. This is, this is no good mojo, man. So anyway, we played the show. And by the way, my friend who was in the audience said Kevorkian was basically like this. He was being tortured that night. He, they left halfway through, okay? Two days later, Doug got a terrible, terrible sore throat. Never had it so bad. He'd get steroids. He had to sing a, a whole key below pitch. And we had bad dates. It was kind of a bad time to play. Terry Bozio got bronchitis two days after that. And Terry, when we got back to L.A., was supposed to do a tour himself, you know, drum clinics. Well, he got bronchitis and basically said, I'm going home, guys. So the tour was over in a week. Thank you, Jack Kevorkian. Kevorkian. Oh, net karma, as you say. I'm telling you. Now, what are the odds <laughs> of Jack Kevorkian being in a next dressing room? A million to one? So anyway, I thought you'd like that story. I was half expecting you to say that out on um, uh, good behavior release for a night was Charles Manson or something like that. But Well, Charles was locked up. But if, but if, Jack, if Doug's brother could have got him there, he would have. Okay? <laughs> but Jack's 75, 80 years old, man. What's he coming to a next show? It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Okay, anyway. So anyway, the tour ended and Terry was phenomenal. I'm dying to get anybody that ever recorded it live or filmed it. I never found anybody. And I paid big money to find anybody that had that because I wanted to see what the experience was like. Terry was great, by the way. A real team player as much as he could. And uh, I enjoyed it. So anyway, that's that story. I think I've heard you say once that you sort of thought at first, Terry Bozio, you know, um, Zappa's drummer. And then he said, but he really liked playing straightforward. He did. And, and some people said, nah, he can't play rock. If you listen, some of the songs he just plays a Ringo pocket, just straight, no fills. And then some songs he, he got a weird snare sound. But anyway, it was a joy doing it. I thought the album could have been recorded better, but it's not the point. I think the material was very strong, and I think we were all disappointed that you know we never got a chance to uh, succeed in that level. And by the way, serious fun we overlooked, but I think it had some great moments in that album as well, which I felt it, looking back and playing it for people who never heard it. I think it got a lot of credit for excellent production, some really good songwriting and playing as well. I do want to ask you about one more song. This is to turn to the album that you said to me yesterday that you were the least fond of. That was Normal as the Next Guy, but the song Man on the Beach. White sails on is so much Burton and Doug's tribute to the Beach Boys. That beautiful. It. And it's not it's not just the Beach Boys, but it's a Beach Boys of that early 70s surfs up sunflower period. It really sounds like it's almost like an answer to the song surfs up. It was very cool recording it and it was pretty remarkable to tell you the truth. If my memory serves me well, we recorded that song during the Don Was time. Oh really? I don't remember doing it because the studio we were in was a real studio not this other studio because it was very well produced as well and I think the harmonies especially and the melodies Doug and Burton came, were quite extraordinary that, that's a unique song by the way thanks for bringing that up oh, it's gorgeous and, you know 
It is. I, I, Burton, again, there's another song that never, it was on the uh, two songs that came out on the Serious Fun Expanded. One was a blues song, Down with the Blonde, which is a great blues song. And Burton, again, plays a great solo. And another song about Mother Nature or something. It's a great song about saving the earth, by the way, Burton wrote. But anyway, that's for the fans and the aficionados out there. Who I hope are listening to this show. But anyway, Serious Fun and, and we had a great, that was my favorite lyric of a song, Serious Fun. It's about reading and, 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 and learning. It's a great, great song. But um, again, you know, it, it seems like we had a lot of starts and stops in our career. And we never really addressed the second album, but that's your call. Another album that I really, really adored and um, felt, well, hang on, why isn't this like number one for the next 20 weeks, like Get the Knack was? Just, you know, another set of really terrific songs. And I, I guess if I wanted to pick any one song on that album, it's uh, The Feeling I Get. It's You got Christmas bells and castanets, castanets, you know, right? Sleigh bells. Yes, well, sleigh it's bells. Doug, it's, it's Doug ripping off Brian Wilson, who is ripping off Phil Spector. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is a Spectorish type of song. Yeah, I like the song. See. Mike Chapman on the second album, unfortunately, was having some marital discord. And Mike was really extraordinarily popular, you know, after our second Blondie and everybody else. So for some reason, there was some stuff going on. There was no reason why we did a second album. Capitol didn't want it. The band just came off a U.S. tour. We hadn't even released a third single from the album yet, which should have been frustrated or selfish, edited possibly, right? There was another single to be had, I believe, you know? And we did the U.S. tour. You know, it wasn't a good time to come back off the U.S. tour. There was things that were going on in my life. Maybe I'll allude to possibly with my brother, my younger brother. Burden told me the other day, he says, Doug just said, I got the songs written. Let's we'll just do a new album. And I knew damn well that if we're going to do a new album, they're going to compare it to Sharona. They had to. When you have a big, big single, you can't take for granted that anything you do will be compared to that. Or rather, take for granted. I knew it. Capital, for some reason... They weren't really excited about the album cover, and Sharona's on that cover. It was a strange picture that was edited in with the mic stand. The insert was a good album picture of us in the limo going, hey, girls. That was the truth. That The other wasn't. So basically, there was no real need. We were nominated for the Grammys, two Grammy Awards for Best New Artist and Best Song of the Year. We also hadn't done our TV appearances yet. Dick Clark wanted to do a short movie on us, by the way, did a script. We didn't do America. So we didn't even do the things we needed to do to get to the next level. America wanted to know us. We're American bands. We weren't the one picture that all anybody ever saw was Doug Sneering, that picture, which was a, a great picture for what it was. But the thing was, we were a band that should have been known because we, we were funny. You know, we were or even Marx Brothers, like when we did interviews, very funny, intelligent. And for that reason, I think nobody knew us. We were kind of like the outcasts because of our success. We weren't hanging with other bands. Or had like everybody had like a club, right? Uh, of record people or a gang, so to speak. And we were kind of still flying independently of everybody. I've heard stories, and I want you to clear the record. Was that a management edict that you didn't get to hang out with other bands or do as much press to show your Marx Brothers side? I think the paralysis 
was when you have so much success, there's things you need to do. Now, you normally people kiss ass in the music business to get to that point. Especially when you get there, you've got to do more hand tricks. You've got to do more. Thank you very much. You just can't be unavailable for everything. If you know what I mean, I think there was resentment because in most people's minds, if we were prefabricated to be the Beatles, that's one resentment, which was not true. The fact that we had success so quickly out of the box couldn't be. Well, how could that happen? And we were real players, too. Thirdly, we snubbed so many things. You know, like I said, whether it's interviews, TV shows, we, we needed to be known. And also we got resentment because we did the album so cheap that, you know, I told you, I may have mentioned yesterday, record labels were telling their artists to go, hey, the Knack did it for 17000 Why the hell do you need a $50,000 budget? So then we had some of the musicians, even though they liked us, go screw the Knack, man. We're not the Knack. We're not going to do it for 17000 So that didn't help. So anyway, we start the second album. Mike's really not there. And Doug, I think, took advantage of that. And some of the production, and I think even the recorded sounds, I think just having the songs enough to do the album is one thing. But man, what are you going to compare it to? And by the way, the Knack's album was out in June, and we're putting out a new album in February. And we're not even in America to promote it. We're in Japan doing a, a, a you know big tour. So in other words, Matt Karma, why didn't we do the things you're supposed to? You know, you see, I'm not being critical. I, I knew at the time it was like, why aren't we staying in America and promoting the album? We did make a video of Baby Talks. We did do a video of I Want you, but they're never and frustrated. They were never shown yet. So anyway, that's kind of answers the question mm. of the critics were ready to shoot us. We gave them the ammo because once that album came out, they compared Baby Talks to to the Sharona. And the only thing it has in common is the key of G because the riff is different. The, there's no chorus chorus. The drums are not spectacular. They were do and the bridge is like Led Zeppelin's name. So in other words, I didn't like the lyric and I voiced my opinion. I don't know why Capital would, I mean, it's a clever lyric, but it's damn filthy. And I'm not approved by any means, by the way. <laughs> saying that lyric nobody would wince they go great steven right robert plant or anybody that's into that scene because they're sensual singers they're lead singers that have sexual charisma doug's part of the band and he's not going to sell that lyric because people don't believe it he's not that image and i thought the dirtiness of the lyric was a problem and i never liked it and even when we played it i was embarrassed and in, and in england they didn't even play it well it's a song of bondage isn't it that's a song of bondage no it, it's not bondage primarily my baby likes a real neat beating my baby likes it nasty i mean there's a lot of cute goofy things in there but you know, it's not a great hook. My baby likes me. me to, now, they called this misogynist, which was really stupid from some of the lyrics on the first album, which is ridiculous compared to the groups I mentioned. Yep. I mean, a whole lot of love. What's that about? Right. So Squ Doug doubled squeezing down your lemon and let the juice run down your leg. So Doug doubled down on that. And that's why he wrote that. Doug Burton even mentioned that to me. So whatever we were criticized for, Doug doubled down on it. <laughs> so in retrospect, it was the second album was the, was the first. The third album was the second album. But unfortunately, Mike kind of checked out on it. And I thought thought that if Capital really thought about it, they wouldn't have put it out. I'm not saying it wasn't a great album, but I'm saying if we had the right single to lead it, we would have been much better off. And, and I think that really hurt us. And that's why we broke up. And I think the critics basically had a reason to dethrone us. 
And it's not a sob story. It's just a reality story, you know? Yeah, sure. And, and we, we didn't have enough friends in the business. And Scott, did our manager, did alienate people because he even called this company Upstart, which even by itself is kind of like weird. But he started acting like a manager, but not a manager that knew the business. And, you know, he said, you guys got to come in if you want to book the knack. We got to, you know, we'll interview you. And he said, screw you. So anyway, that's why we got the blowback, by the way. I'm trying to give sense to it. We kind of gave it away because of inexperience and because we the things we should do. We should, if we went to the Grammys and played my Sharona, and not only would we have won sold more records, I think we would have won America. That's my opinion. And unfortunately, it took a while longer to get to you know to there. So um, what does that have to do with our album coming out on twenty two thousand one? I'm glad you brought that up because that was my next question. So very recently, there'd been this newly released album of The Knack live at the House of Blues in Los Angeles, recorded, as I'm sure you've spoken a fair bit about, two weeks after 9-11. And I've heard the stories where you said, well, there was some decision, do we do this? Do we not do this? But your audience wanted to have a good time. They wanted to have a reason to be happy. You were there. You were there to give it to them. How much did that gig mean to you guys? I mean, why was this particular gig, aside from its date, why was that particular gig chosen to be the one that you released as a live album. Was it because it was a Los, Los Angeles homecoming? The first thing is it was miraculous that Tony found. See, I knew nothing about, I didn't know anybody recorded that night, frankly. For Tony to call me, you know, Tony Valenziano, who for Smile Records, who released us, he's a friend and, you know, I like him. And he called me one day and said, hey man, I found this thing. What'd you find? He found the off the board. I wish it had been an audience and the mixing board, you know what I mean? For more depth and dimension. And he called me and said, this thing is really cool, man. It's a great show. It's got magic. We came back with a new drummer. And right after that show, we did that thing called uh, Live at Funhouse, which they filmed. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen a couple of clips from that, yeah. So that was the lineup with Jones, a new guy on drums. And the cool guy kind of looked like Elvis a little bit. You know, he had beside a great guy, a lot of energy. Technically, he wasn't Bruce Gary, but he's what we needed at that time period. He was really good. And, you know, again, we had written new songs, as you know, we did Harder on You. We did some songs off of Normal is the Next Guy, Seven Days in Heaven. And we did a few from each album, which I thought was cool. To hear it and go, man, my God, you know, where'd you get this, Tony? And he told me about it. And then he got people interested in Canada, Liberation, and other people were involved. And, and he said, hey, we're going to put it out. I'm going, what? Really? It was a shock at first because I didn't know it existed and either did Burton. I got a test copy of it before they, even though they were going to put it out in the matter of water, apparently. So I, I technically I had issues, but I really thought it was exciting. And now there was somebody I know who was in the audience that night. He's a friend. He, had, he ended up having groups because of the knack. He was a good friend and he was there that night. So he told me it was sold out and people were screaming. You know, I didn't even know that. And he said it was a great night. He saw a lot of Mac shows prior to that. And one of his favorite albums is Round Trip. But he thought it was a great show and he was grateful to see it. So I know it was better than I remember it. Uh, the audience was great. It was the first gig we played in years together. So, you know, it was exciting. Now, if we were in New York during 9-11... 
there would have been a different vibe because you can smell it. You could see it. In LA, you, you were pretty removed from it, even though it scared you. It wasn't like in your backyard. People were in shock, but it wasn't anything. Now, because of the COVID thing, I compare that to 9-11. And what that difference was, the guy next to you can put you in a hospital, which never happened in history of my growing up ever. So in other words, the, the 9-11 thing was a grieving and a sadness. It wasn't a physical threat. And to me, comparing it, it, was a, it wasn't nearly as terrible nor as scary as playing in front of COVID. Does that make sense? How much involvement did you and Burton have with post-production on the album? Was there much post-production? None. We, unfortunately, they didn't consult us on that. And I wish we could have brought out better frequencies or brought out more of the balance, the vocals, and, you know, because it was, again, off the board. But maybe because there was an energy, sometimes even if there's technical problems, if there's an energy and there's a movement, it's better not to get in the way of it. And it was getting a lot of feedback already. New Knack album coming, wow. And I'm just going to listen. If the opportunity is there, who am I to stop? And when I heard it, you know, we heard it on a higher fidelity. It's good enough for me. And the energy was great. And I think we really, we did a great job of uh, selling that night. Now, the catch to that was the night of the listening party, when the album was going to come out, uh, we rented a restaurant, we were all excited. And then it was another KK moment, I'm sad to say, because the Gulf War started. <laughs> we're watching the TVs and this is celebrating the new album. Hey, we're, who, who, who are we bombing right now? So it was a little bit of a downer, but we did tour after that. And it was a springboard for us too. So isn't that weird? The Gulf War just happens to start. <laughs> and uh, But we're part of history, weren't we? But I like the album. I like the material that was selected. I really like the fact that Hard on you was a digital single. I never expected it, and it was it was a nice surprise for me. Uh, you know, you know, get a little something right. And I think it's a really cool pop song anyway. And it's got a good lyric that I was living through. It's hard for me. It's going to be hard. I know it's going to be harder on you. It's a sarcasm, you know. And uh, I was going through some problems in my marriage, so in a way, it was apropos for the time. My version with Bill Hudson, though, was a little more romantic, actually. And Bill was a great singer, by the way. I, I enjoyed working with Bill Hudson. Great, great singer, you know from the Hudson Brothers. That was really special. And and from the feedback I'm getting, a lot of people really like the album. And the interviews I'm doing, a lot of people really have no idea about the circumstance or how it was recorded. They said, it sounds great. The technical thing, a lot of people, you know, we're musicians, right? I can hear a pin drop and go, hey, I don't like that thing. But I think the audience that hears it, they like the energy and they like the songs and they don't care. So, right? I mean, that's how it is. So I, I'm glad. I'm really happy it, it, it out and because Randy got in touch with you and I get a chance to talk about the knack from behind the curtain and, you know, who I am maybe in the history of my life, so to speak. And uh, Woodstock was a big part of that too, by the way. I'm so happy that we've had the chance to do this. Uh, look, I do have another couple of quick questions for you. And this one is, I don't know, this might seem a little bit unusual, but I've been reading a book recently called Go All The Way which is sort of like a compendium, a lot of different authors writing about their take on what's been labeled post-haste, I guess, about power pop. And in this book, there's a lot of reference done to the knack, you know, amongst mention of, you know, bands like the, the early proto-power poppers like Raspberries and Big Star and the like. So yes. looking back, do you sort of think, yeah, we're happy to be associated with the power pop movement? Do you think it's a fair assessment? Do you care for the label? 
I think when people were at loss to describe something rather than just a genre, so to speak, they invent things, right? You get alternate rock. Today's world, you got 50 different definitions of rock. As you know, I like being called, I mean, who would call power pop, right? I mean, a lot of groups were, I and mean, what is pop anyway? Popular. Uh, heavy metals, obviously, death metal, obviously, you know, grunge, you know, everybody came up with things. But I liked it. I liked the fact because we were a powerful band. The raspberries were great. They didn't have a drummer like Bruce Gary. The police were out at the same time we were. We opened for them a couple of shows early on. I mean, they had a different kind of pop and they were powerful too, weren't they? And of course, the raspberries had a beautiful, different type of pop attitude. Elvis Costello had a different approach to it. And I think the Knack was more of a who, more live kind of ripping band than, than those bands. And everybody, I think, contributed to that sound, you know? And I'm glad to be part of the collection of pop music. I mean, I think we were really great musicians and maybe I have a bit of pride about it, but that's not what it's about. It's what the audience hears anyway. But I like that. I just love the fact that you're able to look back on this whole career there. And biggest thing I've, I've learned from our discussion uh, over these couple of hours has been just how proud you are of the band's legacy and what you achieved, certainly artistically. Thank you. Success is a funny thing. Because I've been playing with Missing Persons, for instance, and for instance, I'm doing this big show, as you know, Cruel World, where Blondie's playing, Devo's playing, Psychedelic Furs are playing, English Speed are playing, Morrissey's headlining, all these bands that have been part of my my life. And I think it's an honor to be playing with them, for instance, right? Now, some of these other shows I've been doing, Missing Persons used to, without Terry and Warren, Dale later on, would be on the bill with us. And we were playing with, again, with Blondie in Berlin. And the fact that meeting these people again, and then remembering us, like I remember them, is really cool. That we had a community, we had a, not an era, but a, maybe more than an era. We had decades of being somewhat relevant. And Sharona, again, is one of those songs that if the nurses at the nursing home, the Philippine nurses think it's like an anthem in their country. It's like, holy cow, we, you know, who knew, right? And people come up to me and Sharona was born on a certain day, and they named their child Sharona. There's a lot of family, a lot of humanity involved in, because of that song in particular. And there's a lot of fans that I didn't know are still fans. And again, playing on the same bill with groups that may be open for us, it kind of made me feel, again, nostalgic for us and even for them. Blondie's going through a lot of changes and, you know, she's not what she was, but that's okay. She's still here, if you know what I'm saying. And it's really cool. Billy Idol's not what we played with him a little while ago at a big forum show. He's not, but he's still Billy Idol and he's cool and what Billy Idol's cool. So I think I have a new appreciation and then you have this new world of music, which is disposable, streaming, disposable one week in the charts or whatever. And one week you're known and next week, three days later, some idiot on TikTok is known, you know? I don't know. It's a strange world, but I still think there's room for all of it. And, and I am and I love playing and I love playing missing person songs. I think they're relevant and they play well in today's world, by the way. The lyrics are really cool and, and I like playing the music. So I think some things are more dated than others. And by the way, one thing we did mention was the Knack has a distinction of being disco killers. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> in the documentary on disco, the guy talks about when the Knack came along, that signaled the end of disco. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Because we knocked Donna Summer and Anita Ring My Bell all off the charts. Oh, dear. How's that? So we we brought back pop, okay? But I told in an interview recently, the reason that song succeeded, because it had a dance beat. Think about it. Like you said, bass and drums. But that drum beat, how do you not move to it? 
So in a way, that was a beautiful song to come out with because it was a great transition. And I think that's another reason why the song was so popular. And then the mystery of Sharona being Sharona. So people wonder, what the hell is a Sharona? I got to ask, are you still in contact with Sharona? Yeah, yeah. She emails me sometimes. She's a, still selling real estate. She's a mom. She has a few kids. She beat cancer. A number of years ago, she was oh, wow. dealing with it. She succeeded in beating it. And I get some newsletters. I'm going to call her again very soon and just say, hey, how you doing? So she's done very well. And of course, everybody knows the name. It's a very common name in Israel, Sharona, by the way. But because of the name, everybody knows her. So she does sold a lot of real estate. So she's still living the dream. How's that? Isn't that wild? It is. So Doug immortalized her and God bless Doug. Who knew? Right? It's it's an interesting story, I think. Yes, I wish we would have done better things. I wish the timing was right. The management was better. I wish a lot of things. However, the fact that we're talking now means we're still relevant somehow. And that's a miracle. The thing I've tried to get across in this discussion is that you guys released six albums. Even if you'd only released Get the Neck and said, right, that's it. We're calling it a day. You still get a part in pop history. But the fact is you guys kept working. You guys kept creating stuff and you kept creating different stuff. I agree. And, and again, my my friendship, unfortunately, is only with Bert in the present. And sometimes I don't think he appreciates what he did as well. I think he's more cloistered. Is that the correct word? Maybe. Yes. He's he's kind of checked out. How's that? It's cloistered. You know, monastery, you go away and you hide. You know, well, Bird's not part of the scene. He doesn't, he doesn't want to tour. He doesn't want to play Sharona on stage. I mean, my daughter had to do it because he wouldn't. Seriously. And Burton actually showed her some of the riffs too, by the way. And he's proud of, you know, my daughter. Who knew my daughter's going to play it? Who knew my son's going to be as good a drummer as he is? I don't know. It's life. But but I remind Burton, when Capitol Records had their 75th anniversary uh, a number of years ago and Get the Knack was selected as one of the iconic albums of 75 years, I had a big Burton to come. He said, nah, he I don't want to go to... Yeah, he finally did. My kid's got on the phone. He said, get your ass there, man. What's wrong with you? He's become complacent burden. I was celebrating you. Get your ass here. And he came and he thanked me afterwards. I'll send you a picture of us together. I'd love Because I mean, my kids are just going, Burton, come on, man. Take a bow. You deserve it. And I think there's a funny thing about Burton. You know, I think some issues maybe pissed him off about certain things and maybe the way things worked out and maybe he got more credit. But I'm reminding him and I am a big cheerleader for him. And as I am for Bruce and Doug, unfortunately, you know, it's me and Burton. And again, I remind Burton, uh, Keith, you know, Burton, you couldn't pay me enough to say as much as I'm saying about you. And he thanks me. I go, well, don't thank me. Do something, all right? And Burton's a good guy. He really is. So that's why I'm telling you this. I just wish maybe he'd appreciate more of how much of an impact personally he made. And again, I, I'm grateful to talk about him, as I should. i got to say, once again, thank you so much, Prescott. This has been an absolute treat hearing you go through all your memories and all the things that meant so much to you, not just in your neck life, but with all the other music that you've done in your life. And if you would have told 16-year-old me when I bought Get the Neck that I was going to get to speak to one of these guys on a podcast years later, I would have thought you've got to be kidding me. So, no, thank you so much. I'm really, really appreciative no, for your time. I, I, I'm with you. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to episode 157 of Love That Album. Bye.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Prescott Niles. As you heard, he's still playing these days with 80s band Missing Persons. So if you're in California, get out and see them perform. They'll be fantastic. Prescott's kids, Liv, Noah and Gabe Niles, have an excellent band called Gateway Drugs. Their most recent album is called PSA. Give them a listen. Next month for Love That Album, episode 158, is something very different for this show. We're not going to be focusing on music. My guest is fellow Pantheon podcaster Stephen Jergensmeyer, who hosts a terrific show called All Music Podcasts Deep Dive. Stephen gets authors of music books to come onto the show and talk about their books and the music in general that they've written about. It's always really great listening. However, I'm inviting Stephen on the show in his capacity of his day job. He's an album cover designer, and he's designed covers for records like Raising Sand by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, Copper Blue by Sugar, and I'm the Cosmos by Chris Bell, ex-Big Star, and there's been many more that he's also designed the covers for. We'll talk about his approach to cover design, his favorite album covers from recorded music history, limitations he's had to work with when considering the size of the CD format, and wherever else the chat will lead us to. I think that should be a ton of fun. So until then, please look after each other, listen to lots of music, new stuff. Old stuff, big names, some band you've just seen down at the pub, uh, a band that's gone and recorded in their bedroom and put the results out in band camp. It's all good. Share your newly discovered music with friends and maybe even on the Love That Album Facebook group. Until next month, look after each other. Speak soon. Cheers. Take a big swing. What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, 
You don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.